0: Hey everybody, it's Stefan Molyneux, Freedom in Radio. Hope you're doing well. So we had four great callers tonight. The first was an in-depth examination of the theories and applicability of Freud, Sigmund Freud. And I have been reading a lot about him lately, so we dipped a little bit into some of the history. But, well, the questions about its applicability were important and deep. The second caller had some issues with the growing leftism in libertarianism, and we did talk about that quite a bit, and I revealed one of the, well, two of the main reasons why I ended up splitting from libertarians as a whole those years ago. The third caller is a woman who is, I guess, close to halfway through the post-MD education to become a surgeon, and she feels discombobulated, like she's not really part of the in-group and the boys' club. And what should she do about it? Should she push on? And well, let's just say her plans for a family struck me as somewhat unrealistic. So we talked more in detail about that and I hope you listened to that. She was a great caller. It was a great conversation. And the fourth caller, she has a son in particular who's scared and nervous about going to government schools, but she's still sending him. And I hope that you understand where I stand on that. I guarantee you by the end of the conversation she did, as well. And I think she'll make the right decision. So, of course, thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Please help out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. That's freedomainradio.com slash donate.
1: All right. Well, first today, we have Michael. Michael wrote in and said, is Freudian psychoanalysis still relevant in 2018? And if so, what, if anything, can it tell us about the relationships between men, women, and children so as to help guide civilization towards a meaningful and productive future? That's from Michael.
0: Well, hey, Michael, how are you doing tonight?
1: Hi, Stefan. Uh, thank you for having me on your show.
0: Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. So, can you tell me a little bit about your history with the Freud dude?
2: <laughs> yes. Um, oh, gosh, where to begin? I should start by saying that I'm a, I'm a bit anxious about this topic because it's so important to me to, to share uh, these thoughts. And I also recognize that Freud... And Freudian, Freudianism is, is a bit of a controversial subject uh,
0: right. in general.
2: Right. So your history? Um, my history. Well, I, I would like to not go into too much personal uh, analysis as I would like to keep this in sort of an objective realm. However, I can say that... Uh, I first be, became aware that I believed in Freudian, what I would call Freudian truths around the age of 33. Um, I began reading some of his work. And one of the first thoughts I had was, wow, this really helps me to uh, explain precisely how my own psyche actually functions. And not only that, but also it, it helped me to comprehend... All of the idiosyncrasies I had been observing in my own personal life and, and uh, also in, on, 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 a public, on a public level when analyzing uh, women's behavior, men's behavior, uh, political phenomena. And I just thought, wow, this stuff, you know, this is extraordinarily accurate and very helpful to me.
0: Right. What in particular do you remember being a light bulb moment for you with Freud?
2: Um, I would say the moment that I recognized that my subconscious is feminine and my conscious is masculine, that was an epiphany moment for me. That
0: sounds a little more jungian than freudian but nonetheless um what did you get from freud that allowed you to assign sex to your conscious versus unconscious
2: Yes I should also state that I I blend I I occasionally mingle freud and jung I guess I would say I'm a freudo jungian it's just that term freudo jungian sounds more like a kind of a Parmesan cheese snack. Or a character when from a, The Hobbit. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> um, but I would say that uh, while well, I was reading, uh, you know, his work on the ego and the id, and the, the fundamental implication is that the unconscious is somewhat infantile, and the subconscious is maternal, and the conscious is paternal. And um wait, wait, Sorry,
0: just go through that one again, make sure I figure out where your pantheon is there. So unconscious is maternal, right?
2: Oh, the unconscious is infantile.
0: Okay. That's the id stuff? Yes. Okay. Okay. So the in the id is the sort of seething, vaguely simian you know, sex and and lust and power and uh need and greed and so on, right? I mean the the sort of lizard brain in a way.
2: Yes. Um or my understanding understanding of it is that the individual id is basically infancy, and the collective id, or the collective unconscious, is basically primordial human history.
0: Right. Okay. So you've got the id, uh, and then we have the ego, right, in the sort of tripartite analysis that Freud has of the human personality. We have the id, we have the ego, we have the superego. So where did the ego uh, – and for you, the, the id was feminine, right?
2: Uh, the, the id is infantile, and the ego is feminine, and the superego is masculine.
0: Okay, okay, ego is feminine, all right. And, and superego is... Now, the superego, uh, and again, correct me, it's been a while since I've read this, but my memory of the superego is the balance to the id. So the id is seething, I want, I want, you know, sort of a Nietzschean will to power, will to have sex, will to reproduce, will to gain resources, which civilization can't sustain. This is sort of the Hobbesian nature, red and tooth and claw stuff. And on the other Mm. hand, you have the superego, which is the internalized thou shalt nots, which are necessary to civilization, of course. And it's kind of what we give up, which is our lust for power and lust to have, you know, like young men will have sex with as many human females as, as possible. But we kind of give that up in return for society, so we have to restrain our sexual impulses. We end up not having polygamy or, or sleeping around, you know, masculine thought style, and we end up subjugating our desires in order to have a civilization, which has its benefits and its discontents. And the civilization, through religion, through patriarchy, through a variety of other mechanisms, I think now he would say through a neurotic political correctness, pushes back against the seething desires and needs and preferences of the id, with uh, you'll go to hell, you'll be punished, you'll be ostracized, it will be bad. And it's this finger-wagging thing which is necessary but not always fun. And the conflict sometimes between the id and the superego can produce uh, a kind of neurosis uh, and and tension between our animal natures and the inevitable restraints we need to live in a civilized society.
2: Yes, I I fully agree.
0: Okay, so superego is patriarchal, right?
2: Yes, uh, yes. The, I would say paternal, masculine, patriarchal. Yeah.
0: And how did you get the ego being feminine for you? I don't remember gender or sex being discussed in terms of ego and superego in Freud, but I'm assuming that this is something that you got out of a self analysis. Is that right?
2: Yes. And to be clear, uh, I've only read a portion of Freud's work. He has so many writings.
0: So of of his, his, even his letters go into like 26 volumes, right?
2: Yes, yes, it's, it's fascinating, and I've only read a portion of his work.
0: And by um, the way, by the way, his letters are extraordinarily redacted by the Freud industry, and some of his letters and the redactions are going to be sealed until the 22nd century.
2: That is fascinating.
0: Yeah, It's a bit of a business, or at least was. Uh, It's like the Elvis estate, but uh, with cheek cancer. So, okay, so you started working with this stuff and it made sense for you internally. And it also made sense for you when looking at uh, society and I assume those around you as well, right?
2: Yes. Well, here's one fundamental presupposition that I base my. Freudian beliefs on. I know it sounds a bit odd, as though I'm a Christian saying I'm a Christian, although in this case I'm a Freudian saying I'm a Freudian. Uh, I might as well make that self-proclamation that I would identify myself as a Freudian. But here is the statement. The infantile id, internal of men and women, both loves and fears two transcendent metaphysical forces of psyche. A, the feminine ego's starvation capacity of eros and b the masculine superego's violence capacity of thanatos
0: okay let's go over that a little bit more slowly <laughs> so read that to me again but let me pause where needed
2: um, before i read it again i'll give i'll, I'll try to give the more uh, vernacular shorter version of it which is that the unconscious fear is that women will starve it, and men will kill it. Right. So there, but it also loves. It also loves women because that which can starve you may also feed you, and that which can kill you may also protect you.
0: Right. Right. Okay.
2: Would you like me to read it again? No,
0: I think uh, I think we get it. I think we get it. And now that is, of course, a hypothesis, a conjecture. Indeed. And I guess my question is, where is the proof? What's the null hypothesis? How would we know whether this was or was not true?
2: Um, Well, all we have is circumstantial evidence through observation. So uh, my understanding is, You know, it's terrible. I get these these mind blanks on this, where I know I have so much to say, but it's it's so in depth that I uh, forgive me if I'm no, that's fine, that's fine. For a moment, um, I would say that when observing uh, men and women's behavior, that it appears to me that the unconscious in in the female collective as a whole, in general is concerned with the loss of the feminine, and and thus their primary concern is the sustenance of the female ego, which manifests as a physical love object, uh, physical and metaphysical, ph- metaphysical, as the mind internalizes the physical as the metaphysical. And thus the inner child, uh, or the inner unconscious, the inner id, so to speak, internal of women fears that it will be starved of its own feminine value as much as the unconscious internal of men fears that it will be starved of the feminine value and thus the unconscious internal of both genders actually fears it will be starved of a woman and that this uh, um, focus on the feminine is is why both men and women are primarily concerned with the uh, sustenance of the, um, of the mother, of the female collective, uh, of women in general, uh, of the feminine.
0: Now, let me ask you this, though. Mm-hmm. When Freud describes this tripartite analysis of the human personality, do you think that he is describing a healthy personality, the average personality, or a pathological personality?
2: Well, I would say it applies to all three, and that the complexes uh, in, in the pathological personality would, be, uh, would not be balanced properly, and would thus emerge in neurotic pathologies. Whereas in the balanced person... They, uh, through, sub, through sublimination and various ways of guiding their libido and, and uh, psychic energy, so to speak, would uh, conjure all these forces into a productive uh, type of personality.
0: And what do you think would be a healthy personality? It's where these forces are more or less balanced?
2: Um. Well, my understanding is that the healthy personality—it's definitely a, a lot of conflict. I mean, and it all has to resolve. But um, the healthy personality—personality. Personality, let's say with with uh, a man, for example, would be that he places some of his ego, his feminine ego, in his wife, and some of his inner child or his inner unconscious id, which needs discipline in his child, and thus expands his consciousness outside of himself, growing thus growing as a person. And in a sense, becomes a manifestation of the superego itself. And thus, when protecting his primary body, he, he now views his, his wife as the primary body that which he would thus serve and protect, as opposed to view, viewing his own body as the primary body which he would serve and protect and uh, this helps prevent excessive narciss- narcissism and uh, thus creates the, the more self-sacrificing, more um, moral and virtuous type uh, masculine archetype that we would like to see in a healthy civilization.
0: Okay. So, I mean, th- there's a lot of good adjectives at the end. I'm just trying to figure out the process. So you take your feminine ego and put it into your child. Is that right? Uh, Into the wife. Into the wife. You take your feminine ego and you put it into your wife. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm not not trying to sound skeptical. I just want to follow the thought process.
2: Yes, yes. My analysis of it is that the uh, the the monogamous element in masculinity stems from the fact that that we were all born of one mother. And thus, the the unconscious internal of the male psyche fears the loss of the female love object, so to speak, with the same passionate intensity that an infant fears the loss of the fe- of the mother.
0: Oh, so this and is the um, what is sometimes referred to as oneitis. You know, there's one woman for me, and if that woman uh, is to leave me, then uh, disaster will ensue, and uh, it's only her, and this is um, causes men to become somewhat enslaved to female, a particular female's approval or disapproval.
2: Yes, there's, there's definitely a, a light side and a dark side to this phenomenon, because on one hand, it can make a man chivalrous and noble and self-sacrificing, the, the kind of man that would protect his family with his own life. But on the other hand, it renders the male uh, vulnerable to the, well, to what Carl Jung would call the shadow of the female anima, um, which is essentially the, the, uh, vampiric, uh, element of, of the feminine psyche.
0: So the healthy element of the female psyche would be uh, nurturing and bonding and so on. And the devouring aspect is the sort of shrew, the harpy, you know, the radical, shrieking feminist kind of thing, who's using the power that she has, the power over men, uh, to destroy, to undermine, not from a place of love and, and positivity and engagement, but from a place of, uh, I'm going to keep applying the hot pokers of my verbal barbs until you give me what I want.
2: Precisely. And I, I would... Generalize that as that the uh, the masculine shadow is tyrannical, but the feminine shadow is generally vampiric.
0: Right, because men are strong enough to impose their will through coercion, whereas women, being physically weaker and smaller, generally have to impose their will through manipulation and uh, verbal control.
2: Indeed, and also I would say that it's it's additionally that the male body is not a primary love object to it on some levels to either gender, to either men or women, because we are all born of woman and thus to the unconscious, the primary love object is always female. The
0: primary love object is always female. That I'm having a little trouble with because there are certainly women who lust after men. And if you look at, uh, uh, Calvin Klein underwear models and so on—they they appear to be quite David sculpted and, and attractive uh, as desire objects. Uh, what does that mean that the object is
2: always feminine? Well, I, I guess to, more, to state it more accurately, there are, are indeed gradations. I shouldn't say that it's black and white; that it's that the love ob, that the primary love object is only feminine. However, all I would say all mammalian species demonstrate a certain uh, behavioral pattern which shows that they value the female at a higher level than the male. And, and this manifests in various gradations. I, I, in the most extreme, the men actually kill the, the younger males off in animals such as lions or... I was recently reading polar bears also do that.
0: And they also and kill off was- the younger males. They also kill off the cubs because it provokes... Uh, for, for a fertility cycle on the part of the uh, females who are desperate to replace their lost cubs with a new infant.
2: Oh, well, that's interesting.
0: Right, and and of course we understand this that um, females reproduce at a higher rate historically for most mammals, I assume. Females reproduce at a higher rate than males. Eggs are more scarce than sperm, and. Therefore, you have usually a, um, a man must demonstrate fitness in some manner in order to gain access to reproduction, whereas a woman just kind of has to be. You know, the, the male frogs fight. I think they're bowery birds or something where the male bird uh, builds this elaborate nest, which is designed to lure the female bird in. And uh, there's a wide variety of tests, uh, either conquesting like stags uh, ramming each other, the, the male deer and so on, ramming each other. With their horns, uh, in order to not to, yeah, in order to try and uh, gain access, right? So the men have tests, uh, and the, the female test is, do you have a pulse? Which I think is optional for some of the more thirsty men, and uh, yeah, that that is a very common uh, pattern, and that's generally because, certainly for mammals, the female has to invest a huge amount of resources in the growth and nurturing of. The offspring right I mean lizards and and amphibians and so on they don't suckle their young and um, when you give birth to live young not eggs um, and when you then end up having to suckle your young it's a huge amount of investment for the females and there's this kind of delicate balance that is really interesting to me because the question for me has always been well why didn't the men why didn't the males just I hate to put it this bluntly, but why don't they just force themselves on the females? For mammals, I think the answer is that if the woman if the female of the species is not emotionally invested in the offspring, then the offspring will die because they're not born, able to hunt and digest in the way that um, you know baby frogs, uh, baby toads and uh, lizards and so on, uh, they're not born. So the mom has to willfully and voluntarily invest in her offspring in order for them to survive. And if a man forces himself on a female, she feels contempt and hostility towards the offspring a lot of times, thus lowering their chance of survival. And so the participation, the voluntary participation of the female is essential, which is why, at least among mammals, men, the males woo and the females respond. And the females must voluntarily choose the male. Otherwise, she's not going to bond very well with the offspring, and not suckle them, not nurture them, not bring them food. And of course, if the father, if the male forces himself upon the female, because he is generally or often bigger than stronger, then he himself, because there's not that love bond or that affection bond, will not invest in his offspring. So uh, mammals are (laughs) anti-rape, sort of foundationally, and I think that's a really important consideration that uh, you do need the voluntary bonded commitment of both parents to have the optimal environment for the children, the offspring to, to flourish, survive and, and flourish. And uh, because the woman must voluntarily engage and bond with the male, the male must prove his fitness in some manner because uh, sperm much more common than eggs.
2: Yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm in full agreement on that.
0: Your ego being feminine, how did you uh, get there?
2: Well, I would say, well, here's the theoretical explanation for it, which I fully embrace and believe in myself. Um, It's that, uh, let's see, the way the conscious itself develops is that it starts from the beginning, which would be infancy. And the infant is essentially a representative of the id in a sense because it is the unconscious fear of starvation and violence in a very raw primitive manner which is not really altered for as far as we know for millions of years infants have remained strikingly similar um and so it, it believes that its body see it has no it has no concept of itself uh it, it's it's not an, the infant cannot Perceive that it has its own infantile body, it, and thus its concept of its own body is actually its mother's body, and that this is the the conscious of the infant, and that because infancy itself becomes the unconscious, the first ego, the first body, the first love object, the first uh, entity of primary value and eros is actually n- not its own little entity of inf- infancy, but the mother. And, and yet this is not a level of consciousness that the infant can recall consciously. Um, and, and so it internalizes the mother as its own body. Uh, on a deeply unconscious level. And, and in theory, this is what drives men to sacrifice for women because the, on a deeply unconscious level, the male is like a child who fears that the loss of the woman is actually the loss of its own body. And uh, it's a bit of an elaborate explanation here, but how do you, how do
0: you think this plays out in the Muslim world? I'm also sort of curious if it's going to be a universal phenomenon rather than specific to upper-class Viennese people who are kind of neurotic. How do you think this plays out in the Muslim world? Muslims, again, I'm generalizing here, of course, right? But they don't seem to be particularly nervous of their
2: women, right? <laughs> no, this is actually a great question because I've, I've asked myself similar questions, and let's see if, you know, I, and I'm no, you know, I'm no more of an expert than anyone on this. I'm really just no, trying to find the truth as best I can. But let's see if I can give my best shot at that. My understanding is that the unconscious is much like an infant, and it fears that the feminine will starve it and the masculine will kill it. And thus, if it is put into a a, a terribly, um, a violently patriarchal society, in which the patriarchal superego so to speak has become uh excessively tyrannical which is essentially it's the the embracing of the superego's shadow um it will respond to that and it will crush its inner feminine side to some extent uh and so i would say that that is definitely a reality it's a possibility that can occur but it is a deeply unbalanced society in which the masculine has become far too tyrannical and and then in 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 such a society as um the middle eastern societies that you that you reference i would say the feminine potential for for the uh vampiric shadow is actually just demolished to the point where it's it's overly demolished that women have not integrated their shadow in such a society whereas in the west i see that we have the the inverse of that, I see that the masculine principle, uh, which I refer to as the superego um, of the collective, has become uh, underrepresented or undernourished, so to speak. And the, the feminine principle, along with the feminine shadow, has become somewhat vampiric. And this has rendered men either uh, weak or, well, generally either feminized or infantilized uh, Speaking in broad terms,
0: and why do you think that uh, happened
2: in in the West or yeah in the West. Oh, i I believe that the reason that happened in the West is because um, I believe that the father internal of the household represents the primary superego which is ultimately internalized into the individual themselves. And when the father is outsourced to the state, that I, I believe this would be profoundly true, that it, it actually causes the society itself to enter into a state of subconsciousness because it is, it has become reliant on an external, uh, source of, of paternal, um, responsibility and thus outsourced that responsibility itself which is very much like the body outsourcing the mind because if the government takes control over our behaviors we might reluctantly uh correspond we might um obey very reluctantly and this is very much in in the same way that when we give our own body an order it doesn't want to do something it obeys reluctantly but either way it obeys and and thus Uh, I'm I'm getting a bit lost here, but what I'm trying to say is that the outsourcing of fatherhood to the state actually causes the feminine principle, which I would define as the ego, to become, dare I say, bloated or uh, narcissistic. Narcissistic, that's the term I mean to say. It becomes overzealous. And to reference Jordan Peterson, who I'm, a keen fan of, he would define this in part as the Oedipal mother, which uh, I suppose it's vampiric toward the the masculine principle, but it's um, suffoc- suffocating towards the uh, the budding infantile child that is trying to grow up into, into either motherhood or fatherhood.
0: Now, I'm going to appreciate that. Thank you. The maybe fourth time lucky. I'm going to ask how you came up with the idea or how you ended up with the conclusion that your ego was feminine. Because <sighs> that's not everyone in, in the Freudian world, as far as I understand it.
2: Yes. Hmm.
0: Now, I know you don't want to answer that question, but you did bring it up. I, well, I actually...
2: I. I I do want to answer it, it's... it's um Because you've spent
0: half an hour not answering it. It was
2: my first question. So. Well, I would say, I would say that uh, the reason I believe that the ego is feminine Wait, is because... ego or your ego? Well, I believe it's a universal, but all I can actually truly speak for is myself. But I would also say that it's a human universal regardless of whether people are aware of it or not.
0: So you would say that my ego is feminine?
2: Uh, Yes.
0: Okay. Why? Um, So if if I was a woman, my female, my ego would be feminine. And if I'm a man, since I'm a man, my ego is also feminine.
2: Yes, that's, I I believe that to be true.
0: And um, on what grounds do you believe that to be true?
2: Um well I believe that the the consciousness itself is is composed of of uh, love objects and that the ego is the primary love object and that for the species to survive the primary love object has to be female and thus the entire reason for the superego's existence is to serve women and children in other words the only reason men actually exist in our species, is one, to fertilize the eggs, of course, but two, to provide territory and resources for uh, women and children. And thus, the the consciousness itself, my consciousness, for example, is actually uh, the landscape of that consciousness Is civilization itself, as far as I know it, inclusive of all of the love objects in civilization? And by love objects, I just mean objects of value, living or not. Of course, living ones such as women and men and children have a profoundly greater value than, you know. Okay,
0: okay, but you can't serve the feminine by being feminine. You have to serve the feminine by being masculine, right? Because if you're going to go out and fight... In the world, to gain resources, to compete with other men, in order to gain access to the highest status woman you can get, then if you say that as a man my ego is feminine, then it can't actually serve the feminine, because then it would be acting as a woman rather than acting as a man, which would mean that it would not have necessarily the aggression, the the um, the assertiveness, or the competitive instinct, or the risk taking ability to go out and get resources to get a woman's um, affection, let's say. So I don't know how the ego, by serving the feminine as a man, I don't know how the ego could be feminine. I'm not sure what it would have to offer.
2: Well, um, to be clear, my my superego is masculine, and that is the part that serves the feminine. But my ego, in other words, when I say the ego, I don't mean the ego inclusive of the superego. I mean... The ego not inclusive of the superego. It's actually a common uh, confusion that I, I face when reading psychoanalysis. So sometimes they refer to the ego, and I don't know whether they're referring to the ego inclusive of the superego or not. Does that make sense?
0: So it is the superego that leads you out to compete to get resources, but it's the, the, the feminine that you're serving is not your wife or the woman that you want. But it's your own ego that's the feminine that you're serving.
2: Well, yes, it's in a sense, it's both, because for a man's ego to be properly integrated into the culture so as not to become purely self-centric and narcissistic, my analysis is that his feminine ego manifests as all things feminine, and those things I would I would define as being uh, the home women, um, the cultivation of resources. Uh, To to, to explain that on a large scale, I would say, for example, with the country of America, the land itself is a feminine ego, but the state is a patriarchal superego, and the boundaries around it are much like that of a protective father and husband who wishes to protect the internal feminine realm and and that there is a deeply tribal, ancient, uh highly uh gendered relationship between the concept of the land inclusive of its resources, with the governmental patriarchal uh oh, but
0: okay. But, okay, so now I think we've come to a testable hypothesis. It took a little while, but so if the government is patriarchal in the super ego sense, is that right? Yes then why is it as the government gets bigger, the patriarchy gets more and more attacked and diminished and scored? Ah. Because you're saying the state is patriarchal, but the state is getting bigger and more powerful, which means I think by your hypothesis that the patriarchy should be getting bigger and more powerful, but it's not. Quite the opposite is happening.
2: Yes. Well, that's a fascinating question. Um, See, I believe it's because, from my understanding, the The feminine ego has a, has a vampiric um shadow now uh, it also has that benevolent shadow which is nourishing and wonderful. but the vampiric shadow wishes to um oh dear, let's see. forgive me for pausing for a moment. I know I have something meaningful to say on this <laughs> the it um Okay, Here, here's here's my analysis of that. I have to go all the way down to the unconscious, which is infantile. The infantile unconscious internal of women, as well as in men, is edipal towards the patriarchal force and wishes to... Uh, it thinks that if it overthrows it, it will acquire the feminine eros. And this is my understanding of what modern feminism... Is attempting to do. However, um, in doing so, it actually weakens the majority of men while concentrating the patriarchal power in an extremely finite percentile of men. And thus, you'll notice that although the feminists, for example, often proclaim they want to tear down the patriarchy, their actions actually reveal that they're concentrating government power in as finite and as few men as humanly possible. And my understanding of that is that this is also where polygamy comes from. In other words, the, the female collective in an ancient tribe would go to the most violent male and they would say, uh, can you please redistribute the, the wealth made by the, the beta males uh, or the less dominant males more equally among the women and children? And then... The, and, um, mm. Uh, this would be a understandable sort of a goal for them, and so there's an inherent contradiction, which I believe shows that the society is not fully conscious because it says it wants one thing, but it acts out another. And to me, that is a sign that, uh, well, to, to to quote a to roughly quote a, a quote by Carl Jung, he said, "If you don't make the con the, pardon me, he said, if you don't make the unconscious." conscious it will rule your life and you will call it fate and uh, i believe that that's where the contradiction comes from but um forgive me if that was a convoluted answer I, well, I it was
0: know. and you know i pointed out a contradiction in a hypothesis that you put forward and it did seem to be like a deep ink squid squirt of baffle gap in order to avoid the contradiction always makes me a little suspicious when a contradiction can be waved away with the transfer of the feminine alter ego vampiric under something or other, right? I mean, that is a challenge. There's an alternative way, I think, of looking at this, which is in a free market. The Pareto principle means that few, like more and more resources are generated and accumulate to the smart men in general. There are some women too, but the smart men create and gain a lot of resources. Now they then use those resources to woo and wed and reproduce with the alpha females, right? So the alpha males in an economic sense end up mating with the alpha females in a fertility sense, which doesn't just mean cute and pretty and tits and it also means intelligence and a willingness to be a good mom and good provider and all that kind of good good provider of services for the household and so on. Now, in a situation where... The economy is not so free. The gap between rich and poor doesn't really follow the Pareto principle, which is that the square root of the workers produce half the value. So in 10,000 workers, 100 are producing half the value. Those 100 are going to make a lot of money. And so the smart genes and the alpha genes for the males and the females in a free market gather more and more resources to themselves. And then... The alphas have more babies, and the betas, the gammas, the zetas have fewer and fewer babies, and they wish to fight back because their genes wish to survive as much as anything else. And so the way that they fight back is they say that the alphas are bad, and we should get their resources. And they can't do that themselves, so they have to use the state to do that, which is why there's this celebration of ugliness among the uh, feminists, right—the celebration of, of fat and and short blue hair and nose rings—and this is why they convince Katy Perry to, sh- to cut her hair, and they convince Miley Cyrus to look like some demon spawn freakazoid, because they wish wish to uglify, because they can't compete, right? The the um the average male cannot compete with the alpha male, and the average female cannot compete with the alpha male, and so they turn to the state, and they have to demonize the alpha males and females. And then they use the state to, after they've dehumanized them, to take their resources and give them, right? So feminists uh, and women as a whole can turn to the state to get the resources that the alpha female would have gotten from the alpha male. So that's a very sort of brief explanation. And, and the less intelligent people can't compete with the smart people. The less intelligent men can't compete with the smart men. The less emotionally mature men can't compete with the more emotionally mature men who tend to negotiate well and build businesses and can manage people and All that, so you get lunatics like Karl Marx who couldn't put a coherent uh, plan uh, one foot in front of another, and they can't compete. So then they want to design a system where they get to be on top, where they get to harness the Pareto principle productivity of the alpha males. And uh, that's communism, right, where the smart people are either killed off because the dumb people can't compete with the smart people. So they can either kill them off or they can enslave them or take their property or whatever it is. And I think that's a way of looking at it that is has a testable hypothesis to it. My concern, of course, with the Freudian stuff, and this is why I listened and, and was looking for the null hypothesis. And when I found one, uh, I said, okay, well, if you feel that uh, the uh, the state is a patriarchal superego, then as the state grows, so should the patriarchy. But it doesn't. The opposite happens. And then you came up with a whole bunch of stuff that was really, really kind of impossible to follow, at least for me. And this is the challenge, right? So this is not you, but in the Freudian model, the null hypothesis, and this is why it's not really considered science anymore, and this is why over the past decade or two, like one scientist has referenced Freud, which is, how do you disprove it? So if, let's look at any sort of Freudian thing, right? Like the eatable complex. Well, if it's there, right, the the child's desire to marry the mother and kill the father, right? So if it's there, you say, aha, that's proof, right? And if it's not there, you say, oh, well, it's suppressed. And if the opposite is there, say, oh, well, I wish to, I really dislike my mother rather than wanting to marry her, then you say, ah, it's a reaction formation. And you see this skiddy, glassy response to the request for empirical data As you move through a world of myth and language where there's no capacity to disprove the world that you are living in mentally. And I'm concerned about not just the solipsism of all of that, or in a sense, the narcissism, not that I'm calling you a narcissist or anything, but the narcissism of my worldview cannot be disproved. And this shifting of archetypes in order to cover the the eruption of any manifestation that doesn't accord with the theory is not philosophical. It's not philosophical. For something to be philosophical, for something to be true, it must also have the capacity to be false. And if something doesn't have the capacity to be false, then I am concerned about its validity, obviously, right? As you would be as well, I think, if you look at it in this kind of way.
3: Uh,
0: So why is your ego feminine? You say, well, it's to serve the feminine, right? And then I say, well, you can't serve the feminine in order to... And you say, oh, well, no, the the, the superego is patriarchal and it's tied to the state. Okay, well, they say, well, then the state is growing, but the patriarchy's become oh, and you say, oh, well, that's because of the shadow of the feminine. You see, I don't know the way out of this foggy maze. I don't know how to rise above it and say, how is this um I don't know how to put it best, this um pantheon is probably a good way. It seems to me like a series of mythological creatures like a pantheon. How is this pantheon known to be true? relative to alternative explanations for things i mean there are biological explanations there would be genetic explanations yeah. i came up with one that you know i'm not saying is perfectly proven but you know it's certainly a hypothesis how do we know whether it's true right. or it's false if there's no standard for disproof now it feels true for you but my concern is because something feels true for you you know it doesn't make it true and mm-hmm. because it has resonance for you that doesn't make it true Because then you may just have an internal prejudice for this. Or this may be your particular personality structure, which accords with these particular things. And the last thing that I'll say, which I understand is no argument what I'm about to say, but it is an observation. Mm -hmm. Which is that as somebody, I've been very interested in Freud and Jung and so on. When I became a father, I was, of course, very curious about how this was going to manifest, or any of these things were going to manifest in a child who was raised peacefully and reasonably, in my own daughter's mind. Now, there were certainly some phases that you could consider would accord with some of these archetypes. Uh, My daughter, it's funny when She was younger. When she wanted to play, she would come to me. And when she got tired, she would go to her mom, (laughs) right? Because she'd need to be in a breastfed and soothed to sleep and so on. There was a phase, which was a very adorable phase a couple of years ago, maybe when she was three or four, maybe five, where her plan was to marry me. But mom was, it was okay for mom to live next door, right? That was, that was the plan. Mm -hmm. And that's gone by the wayside now, which is good. And it doesn't. I don't know if it leaves any kind of archetype or tension like she does. I don't know about the superego. I don't know about the ego. I don't know if she's not this seething ball of gotta have it who basically slaps her own, own hand back ferociously from a superego patriarchal standpoint so that civilization can survive. I think that it is more of a map of brutally raised children, without a doubt, in Freud's day, Right, we're talking about the 1880s, 1890s, well, 1890s and certainly beyond that into the early 20th century as he was really formulating these theories, the children in his environment would have been raised badly. I mean, by modern standards. Probably by contemporary standards, there would have certainly been worse childhoods, but by modern standards, they would have been raised very badly. Uh, even some, some things as... Um, as simple as within the Jewish culture, there's more, it's certainly matrilineal, it's more matriarchal, there's circumcision, uh, of course, and there is a strong uh, pressure uh, within the cultural-slash-religious Jewish community to maintain the standards in a hostile environment, often of anti-Semitism and so on. And there was actually one of Freud's, uh, Kohler, his name was, one of Freud's um, friends, ended up challenging someone who made an anti-Semitic comment to a jewel and gave him two gashes and ended up being kicked out of the university and going wandering from town to town before I think he ended up settling in the United States. And so there are particular tensions and stresses going on in Freud's day. And I don't know, and I was kind of curious about this when I became a father, how much of this would translate to how my daughter is. And Mm -hmm. I will say that I can certainly see some of the problems that occur in dysfunctional households manifesting themselves in this Freudian trinity, so to speak, right? The, the id, the ego, and the superego. Most notably, that where reason is absent, bullying is how you create conformity, right? And we see this, of course, with political correctness, which is I'm not going to debate you but I'm going to try and destroy your reputation and destroy your source of income. That's because that's what happens when you become postmodern. You give up on reason and objectivity and evidence and facts and data and so on. You end up having to be very aggressive. Now, the choice, though, to give up on rationality, which then ends up with you having a dominant submissive hierarchy, is a philosophical choice and is a choice that should have been more strongly resisted by classical liberals, by people who were interested in science and so on, who kind of abandoned the arts to the madmen and the madwomen. And in a society or a family where you don't reason with your children, then your children have these preferences, these pleasures, these desires, these wants, they're not negotiated with, they're just bullied and crushed. And therefore, they're not allowed to enter into the conscious mind they're not allowed to be absorbed they're not allowed to be acted out upon and integrated into the personality they're just kept kind of underground and then you end up with this ego that is relatively weak compared to the seething desires and the brutal bullying that can often manifest as this superego. so to mm-hmm. me the freudian uh, tripartite analysis of the human personality has a lot to do with Children who are raised without reason, children who are brutalized, people who are, uh, children males in particular, who are circumcised, with an excessive pressure of irrationality and anti rationality being placed upon them, which results in a particular kind of unintegrated passion, uh, the animal side, a relatively fragile ego, because the ego can't stand up against the bullying of a patriarchal slash matriarchal aggression which is not reasoning, but threatens uh, with uh, expulsion, threatens with ostracism, threatens with starvation, in a sense, because the child experiences the rejection of the parents as a death threat, of course, because historically, generally, it was. So I don't know if it is something that is common to all people or is a kind of pattern that emerges when children are raised roughly or aggressively or anti-rationally. And that's why, I mean, I know you don't want to talk about your own personal life, and I fully respect that, of course, but I would say that if you want to find out whether Freudian analyses are true for everyone, then you need to find children who are raised in a different environment and find out if the patterns hold true. And this is, you know, the standard twin analysis, which people have been doing for psychological research purposes for well, north of a 100 years by now, where, you know, they want to find out the genetic basis of IQ, and therefore they look at twins raised apart, and they come up with a correlation of 0.77 or so. Yes. And so my question or concern is that if you have this analysis, or you find that this analysis resonates with you, it could be more the effects of a particular kind of child raising, and it may, your Kind of child raising may have accorded with what happened with Freud or what what happened with Freud's patients in late 19th, early 20th century Vienna, upper middle class, well-educated. And, of course, you may also end up surrounded by people who were raised in a similar kind of anti-rational, bullying kind of fashion where their passions were not integrated rationally into a coherent and uh, consciously available set of uh, feelings. And so it may feel true to you. Because it accords with your history and it accords with those who are around you as a result of your compatibility with them because of your history. But is it true? Is it
2: it's true? Stefan, may I, may, may I interject yeah, that? Yeah. I, I actually agree with most of pretty much everything that you're saying here. But let's say that was the case. I'm, but that's, I'm not sorry, sure that's, it that's it, a big
0: change, though, what, what you just said.
2: But just I,
0: yeah, I don't like these things that just blow past me because it seems kind of weird to me. Because I asked you, is this true for everyone? You said this is true for everyone. Now I'm saying, not true for my daughter, and it may not be true for other kids. And you're like, well, I agree with you. And it's like
2: that's a big change. No, then. I don't agree. I don't. I don't agree with you. I want to be perfectly clear, Stefan. I do not agree. I'm. I'm just trying to wait. Didn't yeah, you just say as, you as, did though? As you yourself say, if something is, I just want to follow this train of thought just to see what the argument is. Okay. Um, well, let's say that was true. I don't agree that's true. But if it was true, then. The, uh, the the explanation for it would be all of Freud's theories regarding projection and um, transference and and whatnot. So even if even if that is the case, which I don't believe it is.
0: Wait, even if what is not the case, which you don't believe it is.
2: I'm confused on what your point is exactly. You're saying no, no. That you're,
0: I'm, I'm not trying to challenge you. I'm just not sure what you're. I said a lot. I'm not sure what you're referring to when you say I don't think it's the
2: case. Well. If I understand your argument correctly, you're saying that the hypothesis is not necessarily objectively true, but could possibly be a manifestation of, of one's own psychological projections. No,
0: that's nothing at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if children are raised rationally, then they don't end up with this fragmented, at war with itself personality. Because if you raise children rationally, you don't have to bully them. You can reason with them. And so you don't end up with an internalized fear object of authority and rules known as the superego in combat with an unreformed, unredeemed, uncivilized id. And so if you reason with children, and you don't hit them, and you don't bully them, and you don't circumcise them, and you don't indoctrinate them, then they're not going to grow up with this particular pathological personality structure. This may be... A description of the pathologies common throughout human history, but not a description of anything elemental about human nature. So if you grew up in Japan, let's say in the 14th century, and you never leave your island, maybe you don't even know it's an island. It's like, well, everyone speaks Japanese. You wouldn't even really have a language for Japanese, like the language that you speak. But then when you meet other countries and other cultures and other languages, you would recognize that you have a local dialect or a local language and I think you may be thinking that everybody speaks Japanese, and it's like, well, if I'm saying that I think this personality structure, if it's valid, is common to children who are raised brutally, rather than children who are raised peacefully, and I don't think it transfers to the
2: latter. Well, I, I would profoundly disagree, and, and I, let's see if I can explain why. For example, okay, let's say there's a person who's, uh, let's say you're you're what you're in you're outside, and you're driving your car and you see a a brick wall and you don't want to drive your car into the brick wall. So you drive around the brick wall. The superego actually threatens the unconscious id with the reality that will occur if you don't obey your own superego. And thus this is much like the punishing uh, hand, so to speak, of, of a father. Um, that the mind constantly... No, 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 no.
0: Okay, hang on. Now, see, I, the, we have to pause here because I'm, I'm concerned that we're just going to go on with that. So the punishing hand of a father may be for entirely irrational behaviors, right? Right. So the father uh-huh. may say, I don't know, we're in a cult. And if you sing, I will beat you because singing is outlawed in the cult or something like that, right? So, So then you have the imposition of a despotic will and and the threat or maybe even the action of brutal violence for an inconsequential action such as singing, right? So that is an imposition of will based upon arbitrary rules and violence. That is not the case of of you approaching the wall. That is an objective, it's It's not an imposition of will, it is the natural function of empirical reality that if you drive into the wall, you're going to have a pretty bad day. But it is not the despotic introduction of will. You can't evade it, you can't hide from it, you can't sing out of earshot of your father. Are you saying that these two, uh, objective empirical reality versus violent, abusive, bullying father would produce the same
2: structures in the child? No, not at all. Not at all, but you see, your example, that's, that's the superego's shadow in a tyrannical format, in a tyrannical manner. No, no, yeah. you, said that
0: the, 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 you said that driving into the wall was like the tyrannical superego. Yes. And then I said, are you saying that driving into the wall is the same as a tyrannical father? And you said, no. But if, the, if, the, if, if, if not driving into the wall is the same as reacting to a punishing patriarch, a violent father then I don't understand the point. Like, then it just seems you have no null hypothesis because they can't both be the same because the wall is not violently imposing its arbitrary will upon you. It's just a fact of reality.
2: The unconscious, my, my argument is that the unconscious doesn't understand the difference. The unconscious, you see... Uh, so wait, the, the, goal the unconscious a- views reality as
0: a bully. Regardless of whether it's a father hitting you with a belt or gravity,
2: um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't use the word bully. I would use the word uh, death for a force, of, a force of the opposite of arrows, something that is threatening to the sustenance of the ego.
0: Yes, but there's threats that are personal and threats that are impersonal, right? So there's somebody who violently tracks you down and tries to harm you and then there's choosing not to jump off a high wall right these two i mean you understand in law these two are not the same situations at all because the violent imposition of will is immoral and illegal under rational legal systems but the actions of mere nature is not because there's no intent there's no purpose there's no will there's no desire to subjugate or control right i mean if you uh, if you run into a wall the wall does not get charged with assault, right? But if someone comes up and hits you, though it may produce the same injury, that's a different situation, right? Do you think the unconscious can't distinguish between a wall and a person?
2: No, it's not what I'm saying at all. I, I believe, well, okay. The subconscious can. The unconscious cannot. That's uh, Wait, we uh, have two unconsciouses now? A subconscious and an unconscious? Yes. Yeah, so the, sub, the subconscious is feminine. The conscious is masculine. No, that doesn't clear unconscious- anything up for me.
0: <laughs> Saying, giving them uh, an iny and an outy mentally does not clear anything up for me. So you're saying that the unconscious cannot determine or distinguish between a threat based in nature and a threat based in human aggression.
2: No, it just, it just, it 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 responds to the pleasure principle. However, the subconscious can distinguish between the two.
0: And how do you know? Um, I mean, you sound very confident. Has this been tested? I mean, I don't know. How do you know?
2: Because, uh, because it, well, if you if you look at the psychodin if you look at the psychological development of children, no, 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 no. Is there any proof
0: about what you say? Has it been tested? Has it been subject to analyses, uh, uh, double blind experiments, uh, a large sample group, a measuring of the threat response of humans versus inanimate objects. I mean.
2: Well, I would say humans actually act it out. Now, although I can't prove it in the sense that we can prove the laws of physics, I would say that there are truths inherent in in these forms of analysis. I mean, here's an example. There are fantastic truths in the works of Shakespeare. Can they be proven in a scientific manner? Not necessarily. However, to disregard the works of Shakespeare based upon that. Okay, give me a truth in Shakespeare. Hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn.
0: Well, that's not true for all women. That's true for some women, and I'm not sure that that's measurable. Uh, I'm not sure that that's empirical. It's striking and it's artistic, and it might be thought-provoking, but it's not a a philosophical argument and cannot be put into the category of empirical truth. But are you? you I mean, there are nuns uh, who I'm sure are scorned who don't set fire to the nunnery.
2: that we cannot prove Freud in the in the scientific sense of proof. But I would also say that we should – I hope we can agree on this, that there are very helpful meanings in, in Freudian analysis You know uh, that people might find uh, ex- extraordinarily helpful in, in guiding them in their well, lives. Well, no, but
0: I inter- look, I understand that. And again, I, I am interested in Freud. I'm currently reading a biography of Freud, which I won't bore you with the details with. I'll get that into a presentation. But the question is, is Freud, of his time and of his environment, or is Freud universal? Now, for Freud to be universal, then it has to cross cultures, it has to cross geography, it has to cross time, and it has to cross different ways of raising children. And I, I don't think any of that has been tested, and that's my concern. I think that Freud describes and has resonance to people who had similar upbringings to Freud and his patients. And I think confusing that for an objective description of human nature is like taking children who are raised Harry Potter style locked under a cupboard and half crazed from abuse and saying, aha, I have found the archetype of the human personality. It's like, nope, you found a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder. That's not the same as a universal human personality.
2: Well, I'll concede that that to, partly I, I agree, but partly I disagree. I, to me, it's like saying physics only applies when something is blowing up. And I would say, no, the laws of physics apply even when an object is at rest.
0: But you just said and we so, cannot prove these things like physics. So why are you bringing physics into it? You said that physics an, and these truths are a completely separate category, and now you're bringing physics
2: into it. Well, it's an analogy. Now, uh, no, No, you saying. can't
0: say... We can't compare this to physics, and then in the next breath, try to compare it to physics. That's not honest.
2: Well, no, no, no Stefan, it's an analogy. It's, you misunderstood the analogy. I'm not saying that it can be proven in the same way that physics can be proven. But I'm then you just put physics into it. Well, it, it is. Okay, it, it is in the realm of theory. I'll concede that. But, well, uh, I... Uh, Does it give I, you no pause at all? I'm just curious. When
0: you say we can't compare it to physics, and then you say, well, you know, it's like physics, does it give you no pause at all? I mean, does it not make you say, well, you know, maybe I put a foot wrong there, or I guess that's kind of a... Like, every time I point out a contradiction, man, you just glide right past it. Every time I point out the failure of a null hypothesis, every time I make a recent argument as to the fact that Freud was basing what he called a universal theory of personality on very specific upper-middle-class, traumatized, often-Jewish, members of the Viennese society. And I make a case and I talk about my daughter, which is again, not an argument, but it's evidence. It's it's at least a sample of one. And I don't know a lot of kids who are raised rationally, but of those who I do know who are raised rationally and peacefully, they do not exhibit these symptoms. So I gave you some counter arguments and I pointed out some contradictions. I pointed out no null hypothesis. And then I pointed out when you said we can't compare it to physics and then you used a physics-based analogy literally within 30 seconds. None of this has given you any pause at all. I'm kind of concerned about that, to be honest with you. And this is the great danger of Freud and these kinds of analysis is you can make up stuff to just keep skating on through. You don't have to pause. You don't have to organize your thoughts. You don't have to compare what you're saying with anything empirical or testable, verifiable or rational. You can just make up whatever you want to glide past any contradictions or requirement for proof. And that is my particular concern about this inward gazing stuff is that you end up being able to make up anything you want to get past any difficulties that arise. And that is not philosophy. That is not truth. And I don't know that that's mature because maturity is saying what I believe must be compared. If I'm going to claim this truth in it, right? And you said that this is human personality, that this this is common to everyone. You don't know that. And I gave you evidence to the contrary. You just skate right past it. And that's my concern. That this may be something that serves your needs but prevents you from growing intellectually. Because okay. what are you comparing this to and finding I fault
2: with it? Disagree. I radically disagree. And to be fair you, you haven't given... Stefan, I want you to understand I'm arguing in good faith. I'm doing the best I can to explain this within within my capacity and I'm not trying to be. In no, I'm in no way am I trying to be dishonest. Um, We can go in circles on this, but earlier you said, why is it that the patriarchy, you know, manifests the way it does? And it the the reason that that's the case is because there's an Oedipal relationship between the citizen and and the government, and it.
0: Okay, how do you know there's an edible relationship between the citizen and the government?
2: Because the unconscious drive of of, of, the human, be- of human beings is to secure women and resources, and, and thus the males have an now They have a
0: resource relationship with the government. I don't know about an edible relationship with the government. They have a resource relationship with the government in well, that they use the government to get resources they don't earn on their own merits. Yes, but so why do we need that they want to have sex with the government? Why do they need that they want to screw the government? I don't understand how that adds anything. When we already have the the answer, which is they want the the resources to flow to them through coercion without taking on the risk of coercion themselves, so they vote for them. Why do we need the eatable thing? I'm just not sure. Like, shouldn't the simplest explanation – Occam's razor kind of thing that the simplest explanation is usually the best?
2: In, in Yes, yes, in part, but I – I mean, first of all, I want to explain that I fully believe all the Darwinian analysis and uh, I don't see Freudian analysis as in any way being contradictory to it. I see it as being entirely complementary to, to the evolutionary-based forms of analysis. And forgive me if I'm a bit flustered. I'm
0: no, this is good. Look, I mean, you came here asking for feedback on this. I'm giving you feedback. Right?
2: Yeah. You know, I mean it's you know, it's such a terribly important topic to me because I I genuinely believe that this can help people. I really do. You know, I I really want to help Well no,
0: I'm concerned that it's trapping you. This is why I'm pushing back. I'm concerned that you're trapped here. Because if you believe that this is human nature as a whole, and if my hypothesis is correct, I'm not saying I've proven it decisively, but let's just go out on a limb and say that. When Freud developed his theory, particularly regarding women, Freud his whole career, his whole life said he didn't understand women at all. And so the idea that he would have some deep insight into the feminine when he hadn't, and he was a tyrannical and monstrous suitor and fiance and and husband, I mean, just a monster. And um, the idea that with no testing, no empirical information, no universal test, he didn't, te- he didn't go to Algiers and find some objective way to figure out whether his hypotheses held true in all languages and all circumstances. And he certainly didn't have access to very many, if any, well-raised children, children raised peacefully and rationally, free from superstition and free from cultural bigotry and bias and so on. So the idea that Freud found universal truths about human nature by dealing with 100 people in a small section of Vienna in the late 19th century with no, with no test, no universal test, no null hypothesis, you understand that's ludicrous, right? The, the odds of that happening are virtually nil. And so my concern is that if you think that this id, ego, superego configuration is somehow human nature, if it's not, then you're limiting yourself to people who are going to manifest that, which I would argue are largely unprocessed victims of child abuse, which means you're trapped. In this kind of underworld, who people who manifest these kinds of symptoms. In other words, let's say that you meet someone like my daughter, let's say she was raised 20 years ago or whatever, you meet someone like my daughter, or 30 years ago, you're going to shy away from her, because her whole existence belies the theory that you think is universal. You're going to shy away from her. And who are you going to be drawn to? You're going to be drawn to people who manifest the Freudian trinity. And I think those people are damaged people. And I think those people are disturbed people. And I'm concerned that it is. Is going to trap you in that. Because when you have a hypothesis that you think is universal, if it's not, you end up trapped with people who confirm that hypothesis and you can't break out. So that's my concern. I am very interested in Freud's analysis of dreams. It's very, very important to me. I think it's important to think in these terms and I think it's important to explore yourself. But where I hold back from a rational, objective, scientific standpoint is is it universally true? Is it proven? Is it absolute? Or is it something? where you can make up whatever you say in order to maintain the thesis. And I think that after 100 years, we know the answer to that. But I do appreciate the call. I hope it was helpful to you. Um, We have been going for quite a while. So I will move on to the next caller. But thank you so much for your time tonight.
1: Thank you, Stefan. Thank you. All right. Up next, we have Nick. Nick wrote in and said, I am a libertarian. For the past two years, I've really noticed a huge shift to leftism, PC, and postmodernism inside the quote-unquote libertarian movement. These left libertarians have infected state and national parties. These same people are the ones who will smear anyone who thinks Western civilization and American tradition is something to be proud of and protected. Nasty people. Even when empirical evidence is provided, they completely cuck out and proceed with terrible analogies, sophistry, and insults. For example, while the times when asked about the European migrant crisis, they say, I'm not living there, so I'm not qualified to give an opinion. They say that, but yet don't live in Venezuela, and they know it's a basket case. Is it because they have deep-rooted relationships with leftists that prevents them from thinking clearly? I have several examples I would like to discuss, but ultimately my question is, what do we do with the libertarians? It seems it's a 60-40 split of left libertarians versus Hoppy and Rothbard right libertarians. Is it time to abandon the name libertarian, or do we fight? I'm leaning towards abandoning, but what are your thoughts? That's from Nick.
0: Hey Nick, how you doing? Good, how are you, Stefan? I'm going to give you a little audio simulation of what I think should be done with left libertarians. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> ah! I don't know if you get the I reference.
4: totally agree. Totally agree.
0: Just kidding, everybody. Totally, really. Okay, so so uh, you know I hate hearing how libertarians are going off the rails, but I'd love to hear you tell me how libertarians are going off the rails. What else have you seen?
4: Well, I mean, I just see that there's just an uh, uh, an appeasing of hysteria and kind of like how you Discuss with Tom Woods with the um, you know sign the petition that libertarians aren't fascists and say like, well what's the re- what what's the logic behind this and what are the ramifications and consequences of doing so and so I just see a lot of that I, I see a lot of kind of uh, well well in regards you know with the migrant crisis I think immigration is the big hot button and um, myself included there was you know I, I've been libertarian for. Um, Probably close to eight years now, and uh, I actively avoided the immigration debate because I just had some tension there, and I kind of wanted to focus on other things. But you know, with you know the twenty sixteen election coming about, I I, I saw you know what Trump was saying and, and how the media was reacting to it, and how libertarians were still just not wanting to go through the data or any of the arguments and just doing what the media does and just writing it off completely. And, and that's kind of where I found you and went into the empirical evidence. and was like, holy shit, you know, libertarians, like, what do you guys think about this? And just either no response or like I said, in my question, you know, they just smear you. And, and so I just kind of see a lot of that. And it's just kind of a deep, uh, deep problem within uh, the libertarian stratosphere.
0: And why do you care? what's happening in the libertarian world
4: well i guess i care because um well i'm beginning to care less is is basically the result this was just kind of a question of like um how how, how do i identify my beliefs and i know it's kind of uh irrelevant to put a label on yourself you know my end goal is I, i want to to have, you know, and Kapistan, you know, I wanna have free markets, private property, you know, a happy and kind of uh, society. And so uh, it just kind of frustrates me when I see libertarians that, you know, say, oh, you know, we can see, you know, uh, not only do we get to see the effects of government action, but there's, you know, we see the unseen. And it's like, how can you honestly say that? And and it just kind of comes down to, um, you know, integrity. And, um, you know, because I believe, you know, if we want to have a more uh, peaceful world that, um, you know, libertarians need to, um, you know, uh, engage with people on the right. People that that do have a sense of private property norms, because looking at the left, I mean, the left obviously opposes that. And, and so it just kind of comes down to just being frustrated and like what what exactly is the logic and the target audience that libertarians are trying to, you know, make themselves more appealing. And it's just kind of just a, um, puzzling situation.
0: Are you ready for another soundscape, Nick? Yes. Bring it on. All right. So if you want to start talking about things like, uh, race, IQ, genetics, um, uh, cousin marriage and so on, right. Then you have to, um, well, here's here's a, 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 um, a soundscape of what happens to your reputation among the normies. Here we go. Ah! <laughs> That's how it goes, right? So you have to say, listen, the media is going to do what the media is going to do. The leftist groups, they're going to do what the leftist groups are going to do. Of course. I mean, the one topic that the left really, really doesn't want to talk about are these topics, right? Race IQ and genetics and so on. And they don't, right? That's the one thing that's unforgivable. Well, I'm afraid that's where you rationally have to go. Of course, right? And so what's going on with libertarianism? Well, they don't want to take on the media. And they have not often gone directly to the audience. So... I mean, I said this when I was in Washington that I can, I can talk about what I talk about because of the donors, because of people who donate at freedomainradio.com slash donate and no other reason. It is not courage, it is support that makes this happen. And I said at the very beginning that I was going to follow reason and evidence no matter where, no matter what. And If you're not willing to follow the data, then just go be a cuck. Go be a conformy. Go be a normie. Go be whoever. Like, it doesn't matter. If you're not going to follow the data, if you're not going to follow the arguments, if you're not going to follow the rationality, then you're not a libertarian. You're nothing. You're just somebody with a clan. You're somebody with a, a sad little anti-rational tribe. You got to follow the data. You got to follow the reason. You got to follow the evidence. it's the only way. It's the only way. It's the only way worth pursuing. And it's certainly the only way you can win if victory is possible. So libertarians want to stay away from those topics, even though I know, and I'm not going to name any names whatsoever, Nick, but I know sure as sunrise, there are a lot of libertarians who know this stuff and not just know it a little bit Not just know it in passing. Not just, oh, I heard of the bell curve. I'm not really sure what's in it, but I heard it might be something. Like, know this stuff. And they don't want to talk about it. Why? Because the the media will be mad at them. And because they're not tied into an audience who desperately is looking for a way out of what's happening to the West. So, if they're dependent on advertisers then they know those advertisers can be targeted. So they shut up and they toe the line. And they do their little libertarian song and dance. And they shut up about the important issues because they don't want to be targeted. Or they don't want their advertisers to be targeted. And of course, I was saying 10 years ago, don't get tied into advertising. I'm not going to get tied into advertising because that means I will be, I will pay for speaking about certain topics. I didn't know what those topics were going to be, but I was pretty sure they were going to come along. And so they chose not to listen, I suppose, and they chose to either get their money through advertisers, which means often shut up, tell the line, and censor yourself. I have a First Amendment uh, with advertisers. I mean, technically you do, but you don't. <laughs> you don't. Or what they do is they get donors. Now, a lot of the donors, a lot of the think tanks, a lot of the people who pay these people are globalists. right? They're, business, they're big business people who don't want borders being brought up, who don't want race and IQ being brought up, who don't want genetics being brought up. They just want cheap uh, labor, open borders, and it's a bunch of crap. And so the only way that you can maintain integrity, is to tell the truth. I mean, listen, I could have avoided these topics, for sure, last couple of years. But not only did I make a commitment to the listenership, but I made a commitment to myself. There is no show if I don't pursue the truth. And not just the truth as I see it, the truth, the facts, the empirical evidence, the data. There's no show if I don't do that. I mean, there may be a hollow shell of a show. There may be me singing a couple of songs and doing some rap and some monkey dances and interviewing people with my shirt off, but there's no show really. Not, not for what I do and what I'm capable of doing. There's no show. There's a shell. There's no show. So what do they want? Do they want the truth? Do they want to become the kind of heroes that they worship? That's the funny kind of thing. Ayn Rand's had a huge influence on the libertarian movement, and Ayn Rand has heroes who pursue the truth and pursue integrity and pursue their values, regardless of cost. Now, that's dramatic, and I'm not saying we do things regardless of cost. But once they turn away from the data, once they turn away from the facts, and listen, I mean, I've I've had enough people on this show who have the data. I have enough well-sourced presentations, I've had enough experts, enough professors, enough researchers. I just did an interview today with Dr. Heyer, who is the editor-in-chief of Intelligence Magazine. I mean, the guy knows his stuff. He knows his stuff. There's no real question. There's no real doubt at all about any of this stuff. And If libertarians want to turn away from data, they want to turn away from reasoned arguments, well, then they're – like, I hate to say it because, I mean, I agree with them on so much. But if you claim to be motivated by facts, reason, evidence, and data and you turn away from it, then you're a hack. You're a cuck, especially when it's a very important one. Like, okay, uh, people are allowed one mistake, one deviation, one – you know, this is an old argument. You you get one one get-out-of-crazy-free card. But not so many, and not on such an important topic. And libertarians aren't going to win an election anyway. Come on. Everybody knows. You can count, right? I mean, they're not going to win an election anyway. So what could they be doing? Well, they could be bringing this information to the forefront. Uh, But they're not. And frankly, it would be a whole lot easier if there were other people doing it. Of course, right? But they don't. Instead, they will often snip and snipe and whatever, right? call me names. I mean, it's funny because for me, it's a conscience thing too. Like if I was in possession of important information that was fundamentally necessary to affect extraordinarily positive changes in the world or at least prevent or slow down negative consequences, if I was in possession of that knowledge and I chose to shut up I literally could not look myself in the mirror. I literally could not look like I could not turn on the camera. I would feel shame every moment I was staring at the camera, knowing that I was in possession of essential information and refusing to talk about it. Come on, that's, that's not good. Now, people can't disprove this information. I guess they can ignore it, which means that they can ignore their own conscience and i find people who know the truth but are willing to ignore their own conscience well they're uh, kind of dangerous and i don't have a lot of respect for that everybody knows this is an important topic everybody knows the science is solid it's more solid even than i thought i just read dr hias great book that came out in 20 end of 2016 latest and greatest stuff it's i thought that iq I thought that IQ was 80% genetic later on in life, like middle age and after, maybe even our late middle age, but it's not true. The latest data is that the heritability of IQ at the age of 5 is 27%. At the age of 18 is over 80%. 18, which is not even full brain maturity. 80 plus percent. Yep, sorry, that's That's the facts. So if they don't want to deal with this topic, then what they have is the capacity to know that it's important, to know that it's true, to know that it's essential, and to not talk about it. And I honestly, I I I don't know how they live with themselves. I don't. I don't. Even even to explore the topic, even to have debates, even to... how, How do you do it? How do you get up and talk about... Other stuff. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. It's like, I don't know. I don't know what the analogy is, but it's like, you know your wife's having an affair. And you just, oh, can I make you eggs for breakfast, honey? Oh, I packed a nice lunch for you. Can I get you a coffee? And what would you like to watch on TV tonight? And like, you just, it's like, don't you have like this torture of like, there's this thing you got to talk about and, Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm unusual that way. But I, I assume that there's financial motives. There's motives of avoidance, uh, and it's just—it's uh, strange to me. It's strange. Well, to me. Have, Sorry, I, go I ahead.
4: guess you know, just even on like a personal level, you know, you know, in regards to my question, like I see a lot of my, you know, um, I ran for office as a libertarian in a particular state for a statewide, uh, election. And so that's why I'm kind of interconnected with libertarianism. And I, I see a lot of, well, I left the party. I left the party last year cause I just got sick and tired of just literally, like you are saying, just being a cuck, you know, I couldn't take it like here are these important issues and no one's going to talk about it, but Hey, let's sign up a, a petition and let's all, you know, there's just this hedonism behind it too. You know, if you have, you know, as, as a libertarian, you know, if I say, well, maybe it's not such a good idea to have, you know, 500 basically naked men with dildos on their head with, you know, kids standing by and watching this, you know, and then you just get criticized as a bigot, you know, and like, oh, you hate gay people. And I mean, it just, it's nothing to do with gay or straight. Just like, I, I have an opinion. Maybe that's not you know, I'm, so I'm not
0: convinced f- that straight people with dildos would be a great idea either.
4: Oh, yeah. It, well, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, it, it, it's just this appease to hedonism. Like, yeah, man, just do whatever you want. And even like that CNN, I had to share that CNN uh, article that said, like, how oh, cuckolding can actually improve your marriage and just <laughs> obscene. And I, I, I had shared it and all my, you know, some, not all, but a lot of my libertarian friends, left libertarians like, hey, what's wrong with that? You know, if they're not hurting anybody. And just like they ignore, they say they, that the, you know, the culture war isn't real, but then they always rush in to defend, you know, kind of the hedonist, leftist, and like, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't really read Hoppe, or, you know, oh, Alex Jones is a nutcase, but hey, you know, you need to check out some of these left libertarian, you know, libertarian socialists that no one's ever heard of and has no significance. And so I guess my question is on the individual level, Are they doing that just because, you know, like you said, they have, you know, organizations have the donors, but these people have their leftist friends. That's their that's their dopamine drip. You know, would, would you agree with that or what do you think?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, there are some people who are into movements for the socializing. And they don't want it particularly to interfere with their lives. Right. There are people who go to church for God and there are people who go to church for cake. And if you're into a particular movement, because, you know, you have some predilection for some of the ideas, and you get along with the people, and similar personality types are around, then you're there for fun. You're there for socializing. You're there to hook up. You're there to, I don't know what, right? Talk about stuff rather than do anything. And I guess just be honest, right? I mean, I'm a I'm a chat or, you know, a cuck or like, It's like not, you're not a true believer. You're not there for God. You're there for cake. You're not there for truth. You're there for gossip. And, you know, again, I, I, I find it hard to be really harsh on people, I mean, that way inclined, because to me, if you're honest about it, that's fine. Like if you say, well, I don't want to talk about genetics. I don't want to talk about IQ because... You know, it's going to get me into a lot of trouble. People might not like right. me, and it's like, okay, well, that's that's honest, right? I, I can I can respect the honesty, if not the path. But then, but then, of course, what you have to say is that, well, if we're afraid of upsetting anyone, we're never going to achieve a libertarian society because you you know what's going to really upset people? Achieving a libertarian society. <laughs> I mean, that is going to be an unbelievable intergalactic crap show. I mean, just. Anything. Take privatizing the post office. Take privatizing schools. Take privatizing roads. Take privatizing government bureaucracies. Take privatizing universities. Take private. You know, like I mean, any any one of any one tenth of one percent of these things is going to drive people completely insane. Try privatizing a healthcare. Try privatizing a social security or unemployment insurance. I mean, people will go mental. You cannot achieve a free society without. Alarming, enraging, frightening, and provoking millions and millions and millions of people who will think you are the worst thing since the devil invented fructose.
4: Right? Well, is that is is that where the, the split is then? You know, because I don't know how many times I've listened to that Kokesh debate and and I don't want to, you know, put you in a position that makes you, you know, have to, you know, say anything about your friends, but l- listening to that debate and he, him and the Kokesh-type libertarians are like, yeah, you know, we need to crash the dollar. We need to crash the welfare system. We need to crash this, crash this. Oh, it'll be, it'll be fine because I don't pay taxes and I, I live off of Bitcoin in a trailer in the desert. And it's just with the right libertarians, it's like, okay, no. The post office, the roads—that's all owned. That 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 is paid for by the tax victims, and we need to, like Walter Block said, in regards to privatization of the road system. You know, the most fair way, according to the the just principle, would be that the taxpayers already own that, and you would start a share program. And so, I just don't understand why they they how they think you're going to get an Ancapistan if we just crash the economy and open the borders. And, you know, I, I just don't understand that type of logic. Uh, it, it, I, I just, I'm, I'm baffled because you can't privatize. How can you privatize something that's not owned it? Do you just have the government sell off land? Well, no, because that wouldn't be fair to the, you know, the tax victims. And so it, not only are they ignoring, like, the, uh, the data, like, Kokesh had said on your debate, you know, like, well, no, 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 I'm not interested in, the, I'm not disputing your, your argument, your, your data or, you know, or what he called your narrative. I'm not, no, 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 I'm not. I know. And so it's just like, well, what are you arguing for? And it leads me to my next question. At what
0: point? Well, hold on. Just hold, hold your question. I just wanted to clarify something. Adam Kokesh is not a friend of mine.
4: Okay. I I, I no, I, and, and
0: I completely understand why you think that. I mean, we've done shows together years ago and so on. But he is not uh, a friend of mine. Uh, I, I, you know, Friendships, to me, uh, are value-based. And that even if you had been a friend of mine holding that position, sorry. There are more important things than a mildly shared media history, <laughs> you know, as far as that goes. It was the same right. thing with Walter Bloch. When I was talking, I had a debate with him about spanking. Didn't question the data. Didn't question the arguments. Didn't question the facts. Didn't accept the reality. <laughs> you know? Well, if drunk people are about to walk off a of bridge, <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I just I just wanted to point that out. And, and the reason I say that is I've said that friendships must be based on shared values. And so if I have a fundamental disagreement with someone like that, no way. Can't be friend. Can't be a friend. This, I said this back at Libertopia in 2010. Uh, it was, I don't know, a long, long time ago. And I just really wanted to be clear on that because – I know I've said friendships require shared values. And when you have an opposition, when when he calls facts narrative, that is not the same planet. And I cannot be friends with someone like that. Right, right.
4: Yeah, no, I, I, I totally understand. And so I guess now my next question is, at what point, uh, logically, maybe that's not the right word, would you consider these people that want to crash everything, want to flood the... Um, you know, unmitigated immigration, you know, the whole entire world moved to Western civilization. At what point do you just start calling them, you know, is it fair to call them, well, you're basically communists because the end result of your desires is communism. Is that, is that fair to say? Or well, I mean, it
0: certainly would be, uh, if, you, if you want to invite a lot of people into your country who are dependent on the state, And then the state goes tits up, then you will quite often have, I mean, there may be some self-deportations and so on, but there will be uh, a lot of conflict verging on secession, separation, civil war, who knows, right? I mean, that's inevitable. And if you look at America, I mean, just look at the 19th century, there was pretty open borders then, and there was not a lot of Hispanic immigration even though the border was significantly undefended, because there was no welfare state. And so if you don't have a big government, then with the capacity to redistribute trillions of dollars of resources, then immigration becomes much less of an issue. Of course. I mean, without a doubt. And plus you have private property, private ownership. The government doesn't own massive tracts of land all over the place that that nobody's policing national parks and crap. So at what point are they becoming destructive, Well, you know, my particular interaction with libertarians and why I began drifting from them was was based on on two things. The first was the universal blowback and reaction slash indifference slash hostility slash rage at the argument, which I put out very clearly, that spanking was a violation of the non-aggression principle. Hey, look, here's something you can do in your life right now. And I started talking about this 12 years ago. Now imagine if libertarians had listened to me, hundreds of thousands of libertarians with kids had listened to me. We'd have a whole bunch of people coming into adulthood now who would be magnificent. Magnificent human beings, hundreds of thousands of them, leaders, fearless, courageous, powerful, inspiring. Hundreds of thousands of people, children who'd been raised Peacefully. Let's say, of course, uh, you start when they're six. Let's say you start a little late. Okay, they're 18 now, 12 years ago. Let's say they were four and they were 16. Now, do you not think that human beings as a whole would be fascinated, would be fascinated by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children who were amazing human beings coming into view as adults? They would be, and they'd say, whoa, what's that? Do you not think psychologists would be fascinated to study how their brains work, how their emotions work, how their limbic systems work, how their neurotransmitters fire? Do you not think they'd love to get them in fMRI machines? Do you not think they would love to figure out what IQ differences there might be as the result of being raised with negotiation rather than with force? Do you not think this would be a massive cohort of incredibly powerful examples for society to emulate? And do you not think then that given the studies that would come out of this or just the personal inspiration for being in the presence of people raised peacefully and rationally, do you not think that that would have a huge impact culturally and prove the value of the non-aggression principle right up front, right there, standing before you, glowing, godlike, with wings on their shoulders? That would be an incredible example. And it would have shown that libertarians respected the non-aggression principle, that they refused to initiate force against their own children, and we would all see the glorious results of that. And I saw that very clearly, and I talked about that very clearly, that we need to demonstrate the value of the non-aggression principle within our own lives, within our own families. Now, you say, well, I didn't have any kids, yeah? How about you know someone or knew someone at some point who had kids? Could you not have brought them this information? Could you not have fought for the expansion of the non-aggression principle? As far and as wide as humanly possible. No, I want to go to pork fist, pork fest, and get an STD. <laughs> I want to let leftists take over the hell out of that, right? So the, the failure of libertarians to say, wow, this is a practical plan with theoretical foundations, with scientific support. Say, oh, well, you know, this is a rational argument that that spanking violates the non-aggression principle. People didn't take to that. They got mad at me, generally. And then I said, okay, well, if they don't like the rational arguments, maybe they'll like the data because, you know, so data-driven, libertarian, so objective, so data-driven. So I brought in the data. I brought in the facts, the studies, the, right? This is pretty early on in what I was doing. Eh, they didn't care. I mean, a few, don't get me wrong. Some 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 cared, and, and but they didn't make it a thing. They didn't push it. They didn't make it a part of the movement. So what did they do? Well, they went for politics, and how did that work out? And they went for their conferences, and how did that work out? And they talked about rent control, and the Fed, and fiat currency, and private ownership of the roads. And they, t- I mean, and what did it do? What did it do? We could have had a quarter of a million amazing people to show to the world as glorious examples of the non-aggression principle made flesh. You don't think parents would be interested in children who perform that well, who are that amazing? I'm telling you, we could have had it right there for people to see from space, from another galaxy. But they didn't want it. So that was my first sort of, ha, maybe... Maybe it's a little bit more talk than action. And the second, of course, which I won't go into any more detail in particular, was universally preferable behavior, my rational proof of secular ethics. Soup to nuts. Incontrovertible. And I said that this is what the world needs the most, the rational proof of secular ethics. And there was some bitching about it. There was some negativity towards it. And I must have done, I don't know, 50 presentations, (laughs) 20 presentations on this. I did live presentations on it. I did arguments. I did debates. I did rebuttals. I did countless videos on it. I debated it over and over again just to get the word out on this show, elsewhere. And I don't care. So, I'm an empiricist, <laughs> right? I do not cast my pearls. So you know how that goes, right? But I'm an empiricist, which means that I'm going to... I don't care what people say. I mean... If, who cares what people say? Anyone can say anything. It's like that last guy, you know, like, I mean, nice guy, a bit confused, I think. and I'm not sure he was as honest as he thought. I I'm not trying to be dishonest in any way. How do you know that? <laughs> you know, I'm, just, I'm just going empirically with what you're saying. I don't care what you say. I care with what you do and, and, and what actually happens. And so those two were like, okay, well, this is not uh, not a particularly serious group in terms of really wanting to do things to change the world. And, of course, with the demographic winter, the decline of the population in Europe with uh, race and IQ stuff, and it's like, okay, well, this really better get people's attention. And, you know, again, just got hostility and so on. So, you know, you, you, you try and figure out whether people are serious about their values or not, or whether they're they've just trying to create a big fish in the little pond, a kind of niche little market for... Uh, murmurings about uh, how policing might work in a free society. And I've got two whole books on that, so I'm not saying it's terrible to do. It's nice to have a blueprint. But I don't know if it's because they don't have enough entrepreneurial experience, if they're too owned by think tanks, or if they're too compromised by being embedded in academia. Uh, I don't don't know. Or if, as you say, that they get all Bitcoin-y, and then they don't have kids, and they can pursue this life of hedonism, which means why bother being disliked by many people. And so I I just, the people who can live with themselves, you know, nobody came up with a good counter argument to the spanking argument. Nobody came up with a good counter argument to UPP. It just kind of went away, went down the memory hole. And I don't, I mean, we all have to live with the consequences, but I certainly don't look and say, well, I should have done more. I could have done more or whatever it is, right? You simply have to accept what people do as the empirical facts of reality. And that would have done a lot to help. That was very practical. That was very actionable. And that was fully in conformity with libertarian values. UPB could have been spread far and wide. And... Anti-spanking could have been spread far and wide, but people didn't want to, for personal reasons of history and lack of self-knowledge, perhaps, or, or the desire to keep everything safely theoretical. See, when everything's safely theoretical and you don't actually have to enact change in your life or challenge those around you, if everything remains safely theoretical, you can wander off in this decaying orbit bubble of nothingness, getting nothing done, achieving nothing, but not... And, and really as a consequence of achieving nothing, not arousing any resentment. So the people who are want to crash the system and this, that, and the other, it's like, well, I can understand the case. I can, I, can, I can understand the case. But what they're saying is that they're tough guys willing to see a whole lot of suffering. But if they're so capable of stomaching suffering. Why did they avoid the anti-spanking stuff? Because, you see, I assume that they felt they didn't argue against the logic of it, it's unassailable. It's a violation of the non-aggression principle. If they're so comfortable with suffering, then why didn't they take whatever suffering it was to spread the non-aggression principle with regards to child raising, with regards to spanking? Why didn't they work harder to spread uh, UPB? Well, why did they not work harder to bring their values to life in their own empirical sphere of influence. People want to see that something works. Before you ask society to give up the only form of organization it's ever known, which is an oligarchical coercive hierarchy all the way back to our tribal days, if you're asking society to give up everything that it knows and to completely undo the only form of organization that it's ever known, you are asking a lot of people. And if you want to change society, people are going to be skeptical, right? They're going to be resistant. They're not going to want to do it. And if you want to provide as a cure to society something which everyone thinks is a poison, the least people can ask you to do is take it yourself first. Here, everyone, take this vial. It's going to half kill you, but you'll be much better off later on. Have you tried it? Fuck no. (laughs) I don't want anything to do with that thing. So people can't, and I said this repeatedly more than 10 years ago, people won't judge your ideas. They'll judge how you judge your ideas. And a full commitment to the non-aggression principle within libertarianism, a full commitment to reason and evidence within libertarianism, is the only way to elevate the authenticity of the belief, the commitment to the belief, to the point where people will even start to consider it, right? If you say we're all dying from a deadly disease and you won't take the medicine that you prescribe for others, no one's taking your medicine. I'm sorry, I don't care how many, you don't want to take it. And so if libertarians weren't and aren't willing to consistently implement the non-aggression principle in their own families, in their own environments, if they're not willing to stand for the non-aggression principle this is part of the against me argument, too, that if somebody wants to state a solution to social problems, then they want you thrown in jail for disagreeing with them. And if that is an unarguable argument, you, you can't argue against it. And libertarians don't want to enact it. They didn't want to rest their relationships on an acceptance of the non-aggression principle. And I've made this a key point of my speaking 12, 10 to 12 years ago. And they didn't want to do it. So it's it's just kind of like a gig. It's like a fun thing. It's virtue signaling, it's self-preening. It's not a genuine thing within society. Because if you really want to inspire people to change, you have to not be hypocritical yourself. That's the first sufficient but not necessary requirement for change in the world. You have to not be. A big-ass hypocrite yourself. Say, ah, the non-aggression principle is the way to run society. Now, I can't change society, but I have stood for the non-aggression principle in my own family, in my own circle of friends, in my own extended family, and I have stood firm and given people the data and played them the presentation. She said, put all this data together for everyone, got all the experts together, made all the arguments. All they had to do was show the presentations and, and say, this is what I stand for. Are you with me? But uh, that's difficult. I I know, I understand, that's difficult. But libertarians, they don't really want to do what's difficult. They don't want to talk about basic science of the brain. They don't want to stand for the non-aggression principle in the family. They don't want to run the against me argument and the value of the power of it. So libertarians say, oh, we want to crash the system, which is going to be enormously difficult where's their empathy for how difficult things are going to be for people when they don't even want the difficulty of an uncomfortable conversation about spanking? Come on. I'm going to crash the system. It's going to be really horrible for millions and millions of people. That's fine with me because I think that difficulty should be embraced in the pursuit of a free society. How did you do with the whole spanking question? Oh, I just completely cocked on that. I didn't want to do that because, see, that was really uncomfortable. It's like, oh, come on. You've got to be kidding. People will not take you seriously at all. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what much you say. People are empirical. They want to see something working before they take the risk. Does that help at all, Nick? Sorry for the long speech.
4: Yeah, no, no I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, this, like I said in my question, like you know, I've been seeing this for, I don't know, specifically for the last two years. And I guess, you know, we've been going on long enough, so I guess I'll, I'll just leave my last quick question here for you, you know, is it a deeper problem because I always hear, you know, you know this is why am my question, postmodernism and subjectivity, you know, everything's subjective. Well, you know, if we crash it, though, on the, on the one hand, we'll get rid of it. But yeah, on the other hand, yeah, some people might, you know, die and, you know, whatever. So, so is, that, is that the most dangerous element of these people is the um, subjectivity versus objectivity?
0: I I think if, if if you want to help society, you have to genuinely care about society. Of course, particularly if you're asking people to do stuff that's really difficult, you have to care. And I care that libertarian parents would have good experiences with their children. I care about the sustainability of the West. I care about the quality of the immigrant experience, that they come to a particular culture and we should try and maintain the good stuff within that culture and not surrender it to endless waves of immigration. I care about minorities within white countries and I care that, that blacks get better opportunities and better education. This is why I'm talking about non-spanking and breastfeeding and peaceful parenting and this is why I work with... Um, people to get that message out and I you know one of the things I was happiest about with the Trayvon Martin presentation was it got to probably two million people podcasts and downloads the peaceful parenting message a lot of those people were blacks very very important so if you're coming from a place of caring and a place of love you can't just callously say well let's just crash the system I mean a lot of people are going to die and and to just glibly oh well you know just crash the system you know I don't know. That's uh, that's not that's not that A shrug, man. That that that's real. People. It just kind
4: of seems like a, just a downward spiral because you know they they. Well, I can't say this because my donors and because I have donors, I associate myself with you know low rent people that you know, and it's it just kind of just a, a just a feedback loop mechanism. Just over and over and over and just goes down into degeneracy. And that's why I kind of asked you know do you consider you know would you consider these people you know, proto-communist, you know, soft-communist, because, I mean, what's the end game? If they get their way, the left is going to throw us all into a gulag. And so, I mean, if they're actively, you know, I frown upon anyone that calls himself a political activist. That just means that you can't get a job or create value. But that's just, I just don't understand. I mean, is it a soft communism? I know Hans Hoppe has talked about democracy as a soft communism type thing because of the outcome, you know, the, the, the end game. If you take these um, uh, realities and, and take them to their logical conclusion, this is what you're going to get.
0: Well, it's, and, it's like an off-ramp, right? I mean, there's a, a highway that leads to the promised land, and there, but there's off-ramps. And there's people laying out candy and, and there's sexy women twirling... <laughs> <laughs> twirling their purses with fitchnet stockings saying, come over here, sailor. You know, this, this all these off-ramps, right, which is try- designed to get you to turn off from the path so that you become inconsequential. And libertarianism, and I, I've said this about political action in, in, back in the Ron Paul days, because political action was in direct competition to peaceful parenting and to UPB and other kinds of things. And so to me, libertarianism in general, and there are noble libertarians and there are people who I very much like in the libertarian movement. So I'm, you know, I'm painting with a broad brush and there are exceptions and all the caveats that everyone will ignore. I'll just put them in for my own conscience and and yours, of course, Nick. But it's just a way of getting people to turn away from integrity and to turn. But we have a great thirst to feel good rather than do good. Of course. Right. I mean, because that's more fun. (laughs) And it's easier and there's much less blowback. Because if you can tempt people into feeling good rather than doing good, then they won't disturb the evildoers. Of course, right? Um, so libertarianism is kind of like, you know, they want to come rob your house and they throw the meat down with the drug in it. And that way the dogs eat the meat, get drugged, pass it out. So libertarians just kind of like, yeah, you can go over here. Yeah, you can have your little non-aggression principle just Don't use it to actually affect any real change in your personal life or the lives of those around you, we're good. Go have your conferences, go have your speeches, go do your talks. It's fine. And and we hope more people join you, right? But if no one's yelling at you, if you're not in any trouble, like, I'm sorry, you're not doing any good. And so I think that is a way, it is a way of of trapping people into seeming effectiveness which gets them off the road towards real effectiveness. And that's a shame. But everybody has to live with the choices that they make. I wish that libertarians 12 years ago had listened to the airtight arguments and the data. I wish that a couple of years ago they'd listened to other things. Because, see, there are movements that are going on in the world and there are people's perspectives in the world that. Libertarians don't have any access to because they're not respected. And they're not respected because they keep talking about the non-aggression principle and self-ownership and self-responsibility. And they reject facts. They reject arguments. They reject data that makes them uncomfortable. And then they say, why can't we sell freedom to anyone? Because freedom makes people uncomfortable. Freedom makes people uncomfortable to put it mildly. In fact, it makes them freak out in general. So if you want to sell freedom, to people, you better not be somebody who freaks out at facts. You better not be somebody who freaks out at data. And you better, better not be somebody who freaks out at recent arguments. Because if you freak out at recent arguments, you cannot blame other people for freaking out when you present your libertarian arguments. It is the sh- like, if I make arguments and provide data that spanking violates the non-aggression principle and libertarians shrug it off and go on with their lives and then they go and try and convince other people, you can't do it. Because you've already got the principle embedded in your consciousness, embedded in your conscience, that you can wave away uncomfortable arguments. So of course you can't convince people. You You have to go through the difficult process of accepting uncomfortable truths and working with them. And enacting them in your own life, then and only then do you gain the authority to change people's minds against their preferences. If you've already changed your own mind against your own preferences, then and only then do you gain the power to change other people's minds. And this is all stuff I said 10 plus years ago. If you want to teach piano, you got to learn piano. And if you want to teach people how, how to overcome difficult arguments, you yourself have to learn how to overcome difficult arguments. And I knew. I knew UBB and spanking violation of non-aggression principle were difficult arguments. And people chose to avoid difficult topics and then wonder why people avoid the difficult topic of freedom. And so by having this off-ramp, by denying reason, by denying evidence, a lot of them turn into useful idiots for totalitarianism. And I wish it wasn't the case. And it was a great disappointment of mine. I'll be perfectly frank with you, Nick. It was a great and painful disappointment of mine.
4: Well, as, as is mine, because, I mean, you know, the liberals want me to apologize for my skin color. And then now libertarians are demanding me that oh, you don't hate the U.S. government enough. You don't hate the West enough for what they've done. And it's just so so tiring and boring and just, like, like I said, I, I love the party. I, have, I don't talk to these people anymore. It's like good grief. I'll, I'll move on.
0: I'll, I'll find different friends. Yeah, and I have no problem with people disliking certain aspects of, of Western societies. But first right. of all, recognize that they still have the right to criticize those societies, which is of great value. And please, well, understand, understand that there are theocracies op- no and brutal dictatorships around the world that are far it, it, worse than the government we live the, under.
4: Analysis that the West is obviously better than um, anything we've ever seen. So,
0: Well, no, it's, it's like when I, when I show sympathy for the victims of a theocratic dictatorship in Iran or a communist cult of personality dictatorship in North Korea, libertarians get mad at me for having sympathy for the victims of the state. Because you're a warmonger, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. So now we're just cold hearted bastards, and that's really going to help sell freedom. Because we'll be just perceived as so moral and compassionate. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. I appreciate your time. i would move on to the next caller. But,
1: you know, we'll, you. we'll
0: grieve. We'll move on. We'll build something better, right? Yes. Th- thank you for everything you do. And thanks for the call. Thanks.
1: All right. Up next, we have Madison. Madison wrote in and said, I'm training and practicing in the male-dominated field of general surgery. I've come under increased scrutiny for not being more of an alpha female. Ultimately, this has led me to seeming weak to my superiors. I'm struggling with accepting and moving on from the cycle I have helped create. I act womanly, therefore I'm treated like a weak link, therefore I somewhat feel that way, leading to being less confident, then treated with less respect, and then the cycle continues. This in the context of surgery as a field, and including my superiors, they aren't very aware of how to handle the subtle differences between men and women surgeons. Additionally, this has been partly responsible for the program asking slash telling me to repeat the third or fifth year of training. My question is, how do I personally and professionally overcome this? Also, as a 31-year-old married, childless woman, do I balance this with a small part of me that entertains the idea of quitting and growing our family? That's from Madison.
0: Hey, Madison, how are you doing?
5: I'm fine. How are you?
0: I never want to play you on Fruit Ninja. I'm just telling you that right now.
5: I, I don't even know what Fruit Ninja is, sir. It's a slicey-dicey
0: so- game that, boy, if you knew it, that would have been a hilarious joke. And everybody else who does it says it's really not that hilarious.
5: Everybody else probably knows what it is. Operation.
0: Did you ever play Operation as a kid?
5: I, I actually didn't. We didn't have Operation. I'd I get to play it as an adult, so it's
0: great. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yes. Yeah, a big question. It's a big question. Um, yeah. Very. What is the relationship that goes on between? the dudes and the non-dudes when it comes to the community, the hanging out, the camaraderie, and so on, like the stuff to do?
5: Ah, uh, you, you always get, like, right to the point. So after I talked with our prog- our male program director and assistant program director, I was talking with one of the female residents who's above me in training but still a resident. And I found out that the program director, in fact, has all of the guys out to his house to go shoot. I don't know how often this happens. Frankly, like, I'd be fine to go out and shoot or not. Um, Another one of the staff, who's my superior, will also have the male residents over to play poker for a night every year, a couple times a year. And then at one of our national meetings, a bunch of the guys will go out together after dinner and, and more or less have said, we'll, we'll send the women home. Um, I didn't know these things happened. I kind of, I suspected, but I, there's, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the guys to be guys. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, um, but that also gives opportunity for them to gain the trust of the staff, the people that are our bosses. Um, and I don't have those opportunities. And frankly, I don't think I ever will. And, and on some level, I don't, I don't care to go shoot. I don't care to like go smoke cigars after our clinical Congress meetings. Um, but I do care that I am given the same opportunity to gain their trust outside of work, which obviously translates to work.
0: Mm. Hmm. Are there sense? other female surgeons in your program?
5: There are, and thankfully, I will be honest. I'm in a very nice program, which is probably like a big part of the reason I'm here. But even with that, there is there can be some hostility between us. Um, Wait, between who? Between uh, other between women.
0: No, no, sorry. You probably don't understand that it's a sisterhood of mutual support, so that never happens. Just, just in oh, case yeah, you're wondering, it never happens. Yeah, it never happens. So you, no. you, you clearly are just mistaken in all of that yeah, because call women our, are our wonderful.
5: Are pink cats together to work? It's
0: yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, they <laughs> offer you back rubs and they pick up your food. Or,
5: it's, uh, it's, uh, how did you know? Yeah,
0: it's you know I've seen the movies. So what happens, or how much do you think Madison, the me Too – stuff has influenced mentoring and men's comfort uh, roughhousing around women.
3: Oh,
5: I I don't know that me too has so much impacted the world of surgery. I started to think after listening to you more and uh, like Jordan Peterson and uh, Sternovich and connecting with the world outside of surgery I realized it's a very odd specific bubble I live in so I really don't know how much other people are part of that or or experience that especially while in training because it it can be very hard we work very long hours a lot um I think I think so some of the first women surgeon residents came in in the late 70s were now in terms of, like, entering surgery residence, a third of the class, which I think average number of graduating medical students is a little over 50% for women across the nation. But in academics, it's even less.
0: Wait, sorry. So a third of the women, sorry, a third of the, uh, of the students who come in are women. There's a 50% grad rate for women. Do you know what it is for men?
5: Uh, the opposite of that?
0: The opposite of 50%? I'm going to
5: go with oh, no, it's a little. I think now it's a little over 50% of the graduating medical students, the graduating doctors, are women. So it's like 53, something like that. Oh,
0: I I'm sorry. I thought you meant oh, – my, my apologies, sorry. I thought you meant that 50% of the third who started graduated.
5: Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I was talking – so medical students, people who, like, graduate with their MD – are just about 50, 50. And of those, the people who choose to do surgery residency are about one third women and then two thirds men. Right. So it's like a subset population.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Sorry. No, no, no. I think you were clear. I just think I didn't follow. Okay. Yeah. Because when men these days, so I guess men throughout history, but particularly these days, you have to kind of watch what you say. If there are women around,
5: no, no, they do, and 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 I think I do think they're trying to be like very respectful of that, and not not as a backlash, maybe as a backlash. They have these like other outside like meetings and events and playtimes, and and I I think the attack on masculinity is terrible, and it, we're going to experience a like terrible backlash from that as a society. And so I don't want to at all seem like I disparage men getting together and enjoying each other's company and just like growing out essentially, because that's not the case. But I do think that there is a, a an amount of trust that is gained by those male residents to male staff that I like. I'm not even invited to the table to gain that, and I don't see other opportunities where I have the option to gain an equivalence of that. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, no, I completely understand. No, I, I listen, I completely understand. W- what do you think this has in terms of the impact on mentoring itself? Um, Which is more so direct, I'm, right? More one-on-one.
5: I, I do think they can probably more sp- and and some of this is just the nature of like guys versus women and and so it's hard to tease out the difference. I do think that it's easier for men to mentor men. There are not a lot of women staff at my program and which is the case throughout the country that's not abnormal just cuz there are fewer women staff in general because they choose not to go into academics understandably. So I'm not going to go into academics so I can relate to that.
0: Yeah, because I mean one of the challenges I know you said that the Me Too movement wasn't having a huge impact, but I just wanted to mention something that that may come up over time Madison, which is the Me Too stuff is difficult because a lot of this stuff happened a long time ago.
5: Oh, sure. So
0: so the problem is that for for men they can say okay, well I might think everything's fine and I'm look some of the Me Too stuff is without a doubt not fine and 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 maybe right. criminal or all, but some of the stuff which is the he said she said stuff. So men might say okay, well The blowback could come 20 years from now, because if the women had said, you know, this guy did something and right away they, they march, they deal with it and so on, then the bad guys are going to get weeded out. And there's not this sense of like, well, this could be festering for 20 years or something, right? So the slowness by which some women, and it does seem to coincide coincide with the drop in their sexual market value as they turn their forties and fifties as actresses, but Mm -hmm. nonetheless, skepticism aside... The slowness of the accusations uh, arising has made, I think, men kind of jumpy about, okay, well, I could mentor a man, I know I'm not going to get any Me Too stuff, or I could mentor a woman, and I'm a good guy, but maybe I do something that she misunderstands, maybe she does something that my I uh, misinterpret, or maybe she's crazy you know now if it's a man it's going to be kind of tough to do the me too thing to another man but if it's a woman it's you know you can say well it's a two percent risk and okay it's a two percent risk but it's a career destroying risk yeah and uh you know i don't care if there's 50 chambers uh in the gun when you're playing russian roulette i don't want to play (laughs) if that makes any sense I,
5: i don't i don't in my experience, at least, and what I've seen, I don't know that it's been so much mentoring, so much as just flat out treating me different. Like, I've had some staff who physically will not, when we do an appendectomy, they'll not like move the camera to a certain port. They'll leave it like at the far port, and it's, phys- it's harder to do the dissection. It's possible, but Wait, harder what? when it's right next to each other. I don't know. And about- some of the- huh?
0: I don't know what that means, support. No,
5: no. So, so. Sorry, I'll explain it different. So sometimes I have had a staff who physically, they would not adjust the surgery as would be normal because that would mean they have to, like, put their arm over my arm and often you end up, like, elbowing them in the chest. um, Oh, so
0: they don't want to give you the boob shot with the elbow, right, Right. for fear that you might misinterpret that as some sort of sexual harassment, right?
5: Right. And so I've had that a couple of different times. Um, and I've never at all, I don't think, sent the message that I would be offended by that. I mean, I realize, like, we're just trying to operate. I want to do the, the most safe thing for the patient. Um, so that's happened. There was another incident where I think probably more so not related so much to, like, sexual harassment, but just being treated. I, I will step back and say, would you... Would your response have been the same in this instance if I had been a man or if I had been a woman? Um, so there was a what? <laughs> Wait, Do you have
0: another personality there or can I talk to her too?
5: <laughs> it's my evil twin. I'm just no, but,
0: but this is the thing though, Madison instead, sorry, you're all not the same. If if I accidentally <laughs> elbow a guy in the boob, no nobody cares. Right. Right. If I right. accidentally elbow a woman in the boob, that could be a problem. Because here's the thing, yeah. too. I don't know what these guys are thinking, but part of you is probably like, do I say something? Do I apologize? Does that make it worse? Does that make her notice? Does that does that make me think of her as fragile? Is that going to draw her attention to it? What if it happens no. again? Like, you just start. And, and of course, in a yeah. surgery, you don't want that stuff because you really want the surgeon to be concentrating on what's going on. <laughs> right?
5: Right. No, I completely agree. And, and me personally, I have not noticed it unless it's been like the time where they didn't move the camera, you know, the instruments where they should be because of my chest. Um, but other times I've been like accidentally like hitting the chest and I honestly like didn't even notice until the staff was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And just like, you're, I'm, I'm just, let's just operate. Like, I just want to operate, sir.
3: Right. Right. Um,
5: but I think more so it's how we're perceived, not necessarily like operating in those more specific instances but times where women are obviously like more likely to say well I think this versus a guy is going to say like well this right and our thought process is probably somewhat similar but whenever we say well I think this or it could be this too or I think like I'm displaying my not necessarily my intellect but my my thought process in terms of like a diagnosis or whatever. And they perceive that as being weak and not being, not making a decision. Whereas the case where for me, it's like, well, no, I know what the answer is.
0: I don't know. No, I understand. I, I, it is the, um, it's the California question mark that drives men crazy. I don't know if you, you know, so the California question I'm, mark comes out of a little Girl speak and I'm not going to make fun of the way you speak, which is perfectly fine. Of course. But, you know, the world is round. The world is round? You know, I, I remember a, a professor telling me this once. Like, it would drive him kind of crazy when some of the young women would come in for to talk to him. It's like, well, I really want to do a, a, a thesis on, you know, like I'm really interested in sheep in southern France. And it's like, why is everything a question? And this is not for all women, but there is this women will say something a lot of times. As a question, not because they're not certain, they're just looking to create positive feedback or a positive feedback loop. And yeah. there is a certain linguistic tick. Uh, women, and I, I think this is more like women around men who are treat, who just like, the world is flat you know, uh, this, this guy yeah, has a tumor or something like that. Right.
5: 99% of surgeons.
0: Right. Right. Of course. Because you want that kind of certainty, e- even if they're wrong, <laughs> you, know, you may want, so you want that. So, but for women, uh, it can be tougher. And I, I find that men don't mind it when women are assertive, but women sometimes mind it when women oh, are yeah. assertive because they feel like they're elbowed aside, that it's not as collaborative, you know, for, mm-hmm. for a man, you know, you want to stand on top of the mountain and, And cast your wisdom and facts down to the squirming underlings below. You know, (laughs) that's just kind of the way uh, that you want to stand like a colossus on the rooftop of the world. But for women, a lot of times it's like, do we all agree? Can we collaborate? Can we get together? Are we all on the same page and so on? Which is, you know, these are two different styles and there's really lots of pluses to be said for both. But I think it can be a bit of a challenge when it comes to appearing uh, assertive, if that makes sense.
5: No, it does. And I think that is where my struggle started off. And then it became they would question me and then I would question myself, even though I knew that it would be in general, I would know the right answer, I would know the right thing to do. I would know how I would want to do this surgery, but then you're doing the surgery how they want to. And every, you know, they're very, you know, nobody, there's like 15 different ways to skin a cat if that makes sense. We often use that very terrible analogy. Now that I say it out loud, it sounds really gruesome. It's not meant that way.
0: I don't want to hear about first year. (laughs) Just kidding. Right. And so you have um, a high degree of agreeableness, which is common for women, right? And you have a high degree of conscientiousness of go on. And in terms of like, see, to tell people what to do, you have to have dialed down the empathy just a little bit, right?
5: And I'm working on that.
0: Right. I now, listen, that. I, you know, as far as surgeons and empathy, I mean, I guess I want an empathetic surgeon, but I also want a guy who just goes in and cuts out or a woman who goes in and cuts out whatever is in there that needs to be taken out or whatever. And it's is decisive that way. And so there is a kind of coldness to being commanding. And there is, in a sense, a driving out of the personality of the other and an attempt to impose your will on the other person's body or in the other person's mind, if that makes any sense. Okay. And I think that comes a little bit more to men than to women as a whole.
5: No, I agree completely. And I, I don't know how to break that cycle.
0: Well, you're well armed, right? You've got lots of knives around. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah.
5: So, not, I mean, how do you lot, think how do you think every,
0: this has played out to this uh, asking slash telling you to repeat the third of fifth year? What what is that? How how did that play out? What do you think the effect is I, that produced that?
5: I so my first and second year, I spent over half of that time um, with two cheap women who were very cutthroat and really very nasty and also very vocal. Um, and so
0: right, things not, that I did nasty wrong, Give me some guts. No, I mean just, just in roughly in general, like nasty hair.
5: Um nasty in terms that they would get on to me for things that I that were wrong, that I had genuinely done wrong. Um, and I would see other people do the same thing and there was like no big deal. Or
0: I would try to Wait. defend <laughs> myself. Hang on, Madison. I'm so sorry to interrupt just after I asked you for details. So when you say that They came down hard on you for one thing. You see other people doing the same thing, and they don't come down hard on them. Would those other people, genitally speaking, be outies or innies?
5: Uh, Outies or innies, what do you mean?
0: Genitally speaking. In other words, would those (laughs) women be as tough on the men as they were on you?
5: um, No, they would definitely be harder on women. Right. In my experience, and...
0: Why? After do you the think?
5: fact talking to other residents. Why do you think? I think that there is part of women that just especially in a dominating field like surgery, that they prey on other women. Oh hello. I'm here.
0: Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um yeah. And that's a, but why do you think they are preying on women or more aggressive to women?
5: I really don't. I, I don't know. And I, I just, I don't know.
0: But that's a big question. I literally
5: right? One of them told me once that as a woman, I had to be 10 times better than a man to be considered half as good.
0: Oh, like, I hate what? that. I hate what? that phrase.
5: That, right. No, that like doesn't even make sense. And, I, and even like despite the fact of the hardships I've had, never felt like that's been the case. That's so drastic and extreme.
0: So sh- maybe they feel that they have to be harder on you so that you won't make women look bad. Yeah. Because if you have that perspective, then you're going to be brutal towards women for fear of women making women look bad. But that actually does make women look bad because it makes them kind of jumpy, (laughs) which is somewhat what, what you've experienced, right?
5: Yes. Yeah, very much so. Right. Yeah, because I think that sort of started a lot of the issue and from spending like literally over half of my residency the first two years with either both or one of these two people it completely killed my confidence. I would question everything I did, not so much when I wasn't around them somewhat when I wasn't around them, but when I was, man, you, I literally could watch on my Fitbit, my heart rate jump up. It was, and I, it was terrible. And now they're gone. And I, at least gone from our program, not gone, gone, but, and I'm really starting to overcome that and to leave that behind. And I've, you know, They're going to be fine. They are fine surgeons, but they're not here anymore. And I wish them well, but they're not in my life anymore. And that's, I'm happy about that.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I
5: I think a lot of it started there and has been the spiral that I could not figure out how to stop from there, to be completely honest.
0: Did you, do you think that you were looking more for approval from the women than from the men? Yes. Right, right. Would you think you were looking for maybe a little bit more sisterhood with the women and had more vulnerability to their negative viewpoint? Yeah. Yep. Right. It's a lot yep, of power, right? It's a lot of power that they had.
5: Yeah. And and I've recognized that. And I've, as now like a mid-level in training, not like a junior, but mid-level, not a chief, have made a point to say to the younger residents that bullying will not be tolerated you always have a person to come to and talk to about whatever in me and it will be confidential. Like I want to end that cycle of violence and it is a form of violence, I think. Um, Cause I don't want other people to feel the way that I did.
0: Right. Th- and this is kind of a hazing thing that does happen for sure. Right. I mean, yeah. this is a kind of hazing that, that happens in these kinds of situations.
5: Yeah, is, is it- Working you know eighty plus hours a week and you know having four days off a month is not like enough hazing in itself
0: right Can I ask you a completely immature and annoying question
5: sure. of course
0: um are you are you are you prettier than them
5: one for sure the other I don't know the other was older right. I don't know that that It matters. probably means nothing, and inside, it's a completely immature question inside, to ask, but. On the inside, I was definitely prettier than both of them.
0: <laughs> right, right.
5: And I was definitely liked better by patients and respected more by the staff, ner- women included, women especially, because I was nice and I took time to explain why I was doing what I was doing.
0: Well, and it's funny, too, because this idea that you have to be harder on women as a woman to make sure that they can cut it. Uh, means that, of course, women don't want you as a mentor. Oh, yeah. And that uh, reduces the demand for, for that. Uh, and I don't like this, uh, oh, you got to be 10 times as good to be. And like That just creates a yeah. whole antagonism with the entire environment that uh, oh, there are enemies, they're going to cut you at every turn. It turns into you know, like Stalin or something and knives in your yes. back at all times. And yeah. It's like, Oof. And,
5: and So now you can imagine like, being told I need to repeat a year, which if I truly technically need to repeat a year. I've told them like, that's fine. At the end of my training, I want to be a safe surgeon. That's my goal. And if that means I need another year, then I am fine with that. But man, it sure does like lend credence to what she said. And that's part of why I contacted you because I, I don't want to be angry about this. I don't want to be frustrated. I don't want to feel like every time something happens, is this because I'm a woman Or is this because of, like, them being so vocal
0: early on in my training? Sorry to interrupt, Madison, but what happened with the mentor was because you were a woman and because of her perspective on how tough she needed to be because you were a woman, right? Yeah. So because she wasn't that way with men. Now, this can happen sometimes the other way with men, that you get this sort of alpha battle that uh, occurs between mentor and mentee for, for men and they can sometimes be softer on, on the women as a result of chivalry and, and this kind of yeah. stuff. So it can go the other way as well, for sure.
5: Right. And I do think there have been instances where I've like benefited somewhat from that in terms of them being like men, surgeons, like being less harsh toned if I do something wrong in the operating room. And, and I appreciate that. Right. And, I tr-
0: and, and I that's my- how you work. And that's how it works for you, right? some people do respond to the the harshness and some people don't right and yeah. i sympathize with both perspectives uh, and if you're not this kind of person you know your your mentor obviously is is with the goal of delivering you as a safe surgeon to the patients if it's funny because if the harshness is causing you to back down then of course some people could say oh well you know you couldn't hack it if you can't handle this stress how can you handle the stress of hamana hamana but the point is of course you're supposed to grow into your confidence about how to handle that kind of stress you don't want confidence too soon because then you become reckless and you don't want confidence too late because then you're overcautious but i think part of mentoring is to help people to develop that sense of rational confidence at the appropriate time and if you are just beaten people back down you're delaying that which you're supposed to be nurturing, which is a growing rational confidence.
5: Yeah, and I I completely agree. And as you were saying that, I was just like in my head imagining the span of the almost three years that I've had now. And I think part of the problem, and, and this is with surgery training in general, and I don't know how to fix this system problem, but we spend one month on a service. And over the last month, I've operated with three different staff And there's not a lot of continuity Mm. for the resident in terms of being with the same person who can really help hone those skills and know when to push you, when to back off, what you've like genuinely done better, what you still are not listening to them about. and, And that's just not really there.
0: Right, right.
5: And it's a constant battle of, oh, I'm working with this staff. How do they like to do this? I don't remember. I wrote it down in my notebook.
0: Well, uh, you know. but, see, but this is the challenge, right? you saying, how does the staff like to do this? Whereas some of the women and some of the men might be like, well, they'll do it the way that I want to do it.
5: Yeah. And, and I'm only just now, after having listened to Jordan Peterson and him talk about agreeableness, and I think with, with uh, I don't remember the name of the talk that y'all had talked about it. It's like, oh, I need to be less agreeable.
0: That's what I need to do. <laughs> that's what he talked about with Kathy Newman a little bit, right? That uh, women score yes. higher on agreeableness and neuroticism and so on. And he does work with women to get them to negotiate more for what they want.
5: Yes. And so I have been I have been more direct in saying, no, I want to do the lap cholecystectomy this way. Right. This is how I want to do it.
0: Right.
5: Um, and that's worked a third of the time. What do you mean? To get once
0: Ah, uh, you see now. If you're saying it worked a third of the time, that's not really the same as assertiveness, because in a well, sense you're still asking for permission to be assertive.
3: Yeah,
5: probably. you know, like
0: if you're really being assertive and you if you're in the right and you have the authority, then it should be just about a hundred percent of the time. Like unless you're approaching an appendectomy with a chainsaw and a spork, in which case you want people to talk you out of Never. what you're doing. But you don't ask for permission to be assertive. You say, this is the way I'm going to do it. And if people disagree, you say, okay, well, make your case. You know, tell me why I shouldn't do it this way. If they make a good case, you can adjust. And if not, you say, well, I disagree with you. Uh, I'm the one with the authority here, and this is what I'm going to do. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to appreciate your support on that.
5: Okay, I'll work on that.
0: And, I mean, of course, it's nicer to be agreeable than not to be agreeable. And the fact that you care about it is, is not a bad thing. You know, it means that right. it's tougher for you as a surgeon, but it's probably better for you in your relationships, your, your, like, your marriage and, and friendships and so on. That kind of uh, empathy and agreeableness can be very positive in those environments, right? Yes. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the hubster, the, uh, the himbo, the man-boy toy. All right. 31-year-old married childless woman you may want to have kids tell me what oh, you Oh
5: no mean. we do want to have kids
0: oh you do want to have kids
5: yeah oh yeah yeah
0: cuz you say it's here fun. do i balance this with the small part of me that entertains the idea of quitting and growing our family
5: oh no no i meant in ter- sorry i guess i was not very clear i meant in terms of like quitting and fulfilling like my life dream of like having six kids although i think that ship is somewhat sailed um no, not
0: really. Start now.
5: Versus maybe, yeah. Versus you have one a year,
0: probably. thirty-seven, thirty-eight, you know. Yeah. Maybe not six, but you know. Um, yeah. I guess I just have one teeny tiny little question, Madison, if you don't mind indulging yeah. me. Um if if you want to have six kids, why are you trying to become a surgeon? So
5: Partly, so I grew up in a family that we lived like paycheck to paycheck. Um, and we all, there were four kids. I had an older half sister, so five technically, but she didn't live at home with us. Um, and my parents are still married. And we all. I'm sorry, who didn't live at home with you? My older half sister. Okay. Um, but all four of my direct siblings are from my parents. And they are still married and happily married. And Does that make sense?
0: Doesn't answer my question, but I, I appreciate the tour of the family sense. tree.
5: I'm getting here. So growing up, living paycheck to paycheck, and somewhat my father wanted us to be independent, wanted us to not have to rely on somebody else to provide for us out of him probably feeling like he didn't fully provide for my, our family. Um, but also just out of like probably being scared that, Oh my gosh, I have all these women daughters and I want them to be financially free to not have, you know, to not be dependent on somebody else. And And, uh, how
0: much debt are you currently in for your education, Madison? (laughs)
5: I actually paid off my student loans yesterday. At at the grace of my in-laws.
0: Huh? What does that mean? How much did you pay?
5: Uh, total for my education?
0: Yeah.
5: Hmm. Three hundred thousand dollars.
0: <laughs> All right.
5: I know, I know. It wasn't So you actually- bought a
0: house of blood. No kidding, I was three hundred thousand and how did you I oh,
5: uh, cutting on people
0: yeah yeah okay so uh, boy there better be some gold in that in those bellies
5: yeah, i am so, told there is i don't know
0: so 300k and who 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 paid this i did no but how
5: um so initially i went to a junior college i had a scholarship after that so i, I went to a two year college for 3 years because that's normal but i I figured out when I was there that I wanted to be a doctor and not like an accountant slash lawyer. So I stayed longer to do science classes at a cheaper rate. Um, it was cheap enough that I could work at a fast food place and pay for it myself after my scholarship ran out. So I did that and then went to a four-year like public university, um, then did my master's in public health for one year. And then med school is unbelievably expensive. When I initially started looking at it, it was actually the total cost of attendance was like thirty-two thousand dollars a year. By the time I graduated, it was like fifty-six. Unfortunately, the cost the every year since like the early nineties. I'm sorry. Can you um, just you just cut
0: out for a second? There, you said that the cost.
5: The cost of medical education to become a doctor grows, has grown greater than GDP every year since the early '90s.
0: Oh yeah, no, it's it one is, of the reasons why healthcare is so expensive. But um, you, you, you've not answered my question just yet. Again, backstory is is fun, but you had a three hundred thousand dollar bill, and you've been a student most of your life. How did you pay for it? I I
5: took student loans. No, I I understand.
0: I understand how you got the 300,000. I'm, I'm curious how you mentioned something about your in-laws.
5: Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. So my in-laws have financed a like personal loan. So we paid it off. So we don't have to pay the 6.7% interest that Congress thought we should pay for most of my medical student loans. Um, and instead we're paying 0% interest and we'll start paying that back when I'm done with my training.
0: So you haven't paid off your loans.
5: Right. No, but I'm also not accruing.
0: See, you said you paid is- your loans off yesterday. And what is, what yeah. is happening well, is I- you're getting a subsidy from your in-laws. Yeah. So they're paying the interest in losses on being able to invest that money, right? Correct. Okay. Okay. So you're still $300,000 in the hole.
5: No, some of that I had already paid off. So I'm two to only two hundred and sixty three thousand dollars in the hole.
0: Two sixty three. Okay. Right. So, you know, well north of a quarter mil in the hole. Yeah. And if you quit, oddly enough, your father's advice to end up being independent will have achieved quite the opposite, right? Yeah. In that you will it, have a useless, incomplete degree and over a quarter million dollars in debt, and so you will not have achieved the independence that your father wanted for you so much because you don't finish, if you don't finish, right?
5: So, when I said quit, I I meant quit surgery training. So, I've graduated with my MD and my MPH. Those are fine. Nobody can take them from me. Um, I have not graduated surgery training, which is the, like, extra little bit... For a lot of bit after that.
0: But you've I done would, three of the fifth year, right? And and you made correct. you would have correct. to repeat that third.
5: Year. Sorry.
0: You would have to repeat that third year. So then you would graduate when you were 34 or so, and then you would do what? Do you then go into um, the, the, the program? What, what's the program that comes after the fifth year?
5: I, I would go into private practice.
0: Oh, so you can just start practicing right away <laughs> after the fifth yep. year. But if you want to have kids, you can't really have them before you graduate, right? Doesn't that put you, you into can't. being 34, 35?
5: No, no you can. Um, it, it, people you know, 80 do hours it. a week. What
0: are you talking about? You can.
5: No, no, people do it. Women do it. and Yeah, I but not well. For, uh, no.
0: I mean, yes, it is physically possible for you to have a baby and give birth to it while you have four days off a month and you're working 80 hours a week and studying now, for exams.
5: Lots of women who do it.
0: But terribly.
5: Hopefully not terribly. No, terribly. Not as no, well. No, no, no.
0: I got to be, I got to be frank with you here, Madison. Terribly. You cannot be a good mother to a newborn if you're gone 80 hours a week. You are a terrible mother. You are not breastfeeding. At least not, you don't have skin to skin contact. Your child is no. not bonding with you. It's terrible. I mean, you're a doctor. You know the importance of, of all of this early childhood stuff, right? Yep. Tell me where I'm wrong.
5: No, it's, it's true. I also, you know, when you're 20, you think, oh, I'll, like, get married and have children while I'm in medical school. It'll be easier then. Well, then you, like, don't meet your husband until you're in your second year of medical school.
0: Wait, you, had, till you had thoughts in your 20s of having children while you were in medical school.
5: Yeah. I mean, just when you're kind of Did you ask sick.
0: anyone? Did you do any research? Did you find out, "Hey, I wonder how many hours of a week I'll be working in medical school?"
5: It's better than residency.
0: That that's your response. It's better than residency.
5: <laughs> no, I'm I'm being honest and I think this is probably a a problem. It is a problem that a lot of people are going to face and, and face currently that because half of the people who graduate medical school are women and they're going to deal with this too. And they are dealing with this too. And it's not. What do you mean they're like, dealing with this? So Hang on.
0: I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I don't know what it means when you say they're dealing with this. I mean, are they being terrible mothers or they're not being mothers?
5: Um, both. They're dealing with both. Obviously not the same person.
0: No, no, no. I know. But we've got half the women graduating in their early to mid-30s, I assume, and either they're going to be terrible moms or they're not going to be moms at all, right? Or or they yeah. give up the entire field, at least for the time being.
5: Yes, which is you know, a fair number that happens too.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get it. Like 40% of women with MBAs don't even work in the business world. Because society apparently it loves training women, back, I don't it, it, it loves spending. You you've probably had well over a million dollars of resources poured into you, so that Correct. you can go and breastfeed.
5: Yes, yeah, yeah. The state has definitely paid for far more of my education than I have.
0: Right. And society, doubt. if you, I mean, if you want to become a mom, society is going to be down one surgeon than if you were a man.
5: Yes. That being said, I think we've kind of passed, you know, the bar has been passed. Women are in surgery. They cannot go back on that. And unfortunately, men or boys are not being really given the opportunity in school to become doctors in a large degree to get to this point. So we're, we're kind of we're here to stay.
0: Well, I mean, <laughs> never say never. Right. Because this is another no, reason why healthcare has become so expensive as we're training Women to become doctors who then often want to go and become moms. And women, of course, as you know, work fewer hours in the long run than doctors to the tune of hundreds of hours a year or less, right?
5: Yes. Interestingly, there's this recent study that says women surgery residents actually work more than men.
0: Um, residents, okay. But if they want to have kids
5: in the the five year training period, I'm sorry.
0: Right. But if if they want to have kids, then society either ends up with bad moms or bad doctors, right? Yeah. And this is, you know, one of the things that I've heard about with regards to women and men have their own trade-offs, but women can, you know, you have a, you have three things. You have motherhood, you have your relationship, your husband, and you have your career. You can pick two, but you can't pick three. Right? you got your motherhood. you got your relationship. So you can be a good mom and a great wife, but you can't have much of a career. You can be a good wife and have a great career, but you can't be much of a mom. Right? You can pick two out of those three as far as what you can do in your life with any reasonable degree of competence. And it's funny because I don't know that this is really talked about much because, I mean, women do get no, a lot of this. God. You can do it all, right? I mean, you you are the modern woman. You can, you know, balance a baby on your hip while you're sailing the Titanic or something. But there is, as you know, a finite number of hours in the day and you can have it all. Men can't either if it's any consolation. <laughs> like, nobody can, right?
5: Well, no. And I do think... Women surgeons, at least on Twitter, have started shifting what they talk about in terms of like a work-life balance to some other catchy phrase, I'm sure. But they do talk about that you can't have it all, that it's not about having it all. It's about doing each thing when you're doing it well.
0: But you can't, if you're doing surgery well, you can't be doing parenting well because you're not there. Any more than you can be great, you can be a great a surgeon while you're breastfeeding. I mean, and, and we all know, we all know who ends up getting the short end of the stick, and it's the kids, right? Because yeah. the kids don't have any authority in the situation. What does your husband do?
5: So he is an audiologist and teaches part-time, and then the rest of the time he works from home.
0: Um, What does he make a year? You don't have to give me specifics, just roughly.
5: Uh, Enough. And he has come into the relationship with enough.
0: Yeah, so like 100K, something something in the six figures kind of thing, maybe a little higher.
5: Total, somewhere in there.
0: So he couldn't really support a family with multiple children and your debt on his salary, right?
3: I don't
5: I don't know I don't know because we just have not looked at numbers that closely for that if that makes sense
0: well okay, so if he's making ten k a month, you know he's got probably t- if he's self employed twenty percent in taxes that gives you his uh he's got eight k a month let's say you need three k for your Living space, you know, internet and, and heating and so on. Maybe another.
5: Where where are you living?
0: Uh, I don't know. I mean, if no, if, if, you, if you want listen, if you, if you want to have yeah. a whole bunch, if you want to have a mass of kids, a uh, a house is you know a small house is going to be a challenge. So yeah, maybe maybe it's less. Maybe it's two k. Maybe you can get that for for two k a month. Um, but then of course there is uh, property taxes and so on, and so you've got two k, three k, including car and gas and insurance and stuff like that. Uh, and then, yeah, it's it, it's a challenge. And, and I would invite you to do that math just to sort of figure out what's going on. Because my concern, Madison, is that if you keep going on with the surgeon stuff, how are you going to be a mom? A good mom?
5: No, it's going to be hard.
0: No, no, um, no. Hard is not an answer. <laughs> You're fogging me now. No, how are you gonna- going to do it? let's say you want three kids right
5: so I those children I would theoretically only be able to have one at most at absolute most two in residency because there is a rule um that says you can't take more than like two extra weeks off per year um due to like fmLA type things whether that be from like knee or pregnancy in your first through third versus, and then separate from that your fourth through fifth year. I realize it's super technical. Basically I would at most only be able to have two, probably only one in residency. And after that I plan on negotiating the heck out of a good contract in terms of where I end up in private practice, largely because the state I'll go to has a very significant shortage of general surgeons and I'll have the liberty to do that.
0: Okay. So let me understand the residency thing. So with residency, you're taking, you're doing surgeries, but you're also learning and there's exams and stuff like that, right?
5: Correct. Okay. We, we have one exam a year.
0: And how many hours a week are you working in residency?
5: Uh, our average reported for our program is 77.
0: 77 hours a week. And uh, you're allowed four days off a month? Yes. How are you going to be a mom? How are you going to be a mom working no, 77 hard. hours? No, no. Hard is not an answer. I'm going to have to – I hate to say this with a surgeon, but I'm going to have to drill down a little bit. Um, <laughs> 77 hours a week.
5: And that's like in-hospital hours. I know.
0: that's So that doesn't even count going to work, coming home from work. It doesn't count um, your, 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 your husband is working full-time or whatever, right? So – It doesn't count uh, getting ready for work. I mean, we're talking 13-hour days, 12-hour days, including commute and getting ready and all that kind of stuff, right?
5: Yeah, normally more like 15, 16-hour days, but yeah. Okay,
0: so 15, 16-hour days. Does that include studying for the exam? No. So it's more, right?
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: How are you going to be a mom? Don't say it's hard. It, don't say it's hard one more time, Madison. I dare you. <laughs> it's
3: hard. Okay, how it's hard. how you
0: how are you going to be a wife? Let alone okay. How are you going to be? How are you going to be a mom?
5: The same way that the people who've done it before me have poorly.
0: And you know what that means, Madison? That means that your kid won't be getting breastfeeding. I mean, you may be able to pump it, you know, in the car. I don't know what the hell, right? But it means your kid's not going to get they regular.
5: That. They do have rooms for that. And staff will let you leave operations to go do that. Thankfully.
0: Yeah. You're not going to have any time with your kid. Right. No, no, no time. And, and that means that either you get a nanny, in which case, what's the point? That's like hiring someone to sleep with your husband. Cause you're too tired, which I'm sure will cross your mind at some point. But, um, Which means hiring a nanny and the child is going to bond with that nanny and then that nanny is going to go somewhere else because nannies don't stick around. There's high turnover with this stuff. Which means that your child is going to experience functionally the death of the caregiver because the caregiver is going to vanish. Which means the child's going to be pretty traumatized, which means you're going to have another nanny coming in and that your kid's going to be really upset and emotional and difficult, which means that man nanny may not stick around. You're going to have a whole series of non-bondings occurring. It's going to break your heart. You're going to have to harden your heart against the needs of your baby who's going to be clutching onto you crying, Mommy, Mommy, don't go. When you have to head off to the hospital, you're going to be crying in your car on the way to the hospital.
3: Yeah.
0: And your kid is going to barely remember who you are because half the time, if not more than half the time, your baby's going to be asleep or sleeping when you crash for a couple hours before getting up and heading out again. And that means without a bond that when your kid gets older, It's going to be really, really difficult, particularly the teenage years, because without the bond, there's no trust. Without the trust, there's no respect. Without the respect, there's no authority, which means, hey, you did what you wanted, mom. I'm going to do what I want. You didn't care about me. I'm not going to care about you. You are setting the stage for, in my humble opinion, a very negative parenting experience.
5: So how does the father play into all of that? Because I will say, my husband is awesome. And on our third date, and very genuinely said, his like goal in life is to be a good father. And to be he wants to be a stay-at-home dad. And so we'll if you're in leaving-
0: school and you owe $300,000, sorry, $263,000, although it's going to be higher. No. If, uh, if he's staying at home with your baby and you're accumulating more debt how's it going to get no, paid so, how are you going to live what are you going to so, live on
5: sorry so the the agreement with the loan was that it is interest free and we don't start paying it back until after my training
0: and okay so but not, do you do if, you get if, paid for leave these leave 77 leave. hours a week yeah Okay, so you're done paying for school. Now you're getting paid.
5: Yes, I do get paid. I finally get paid. But not much, right? <laughs> huh? But not much. Um, it comes out to a little over $12 an hour. Granted, it's 77 hours a week, um, but it does include a lot of decent benefits. Healthcare is pretty inexpensive when you're a doctor. That's So we're talking $2,000
0: nine- a month. So if your husband's going to be a stay-at-home dad... <laughs> How are you going to live on $2,000 a month?
5: After taxes, is about twenty eight, dollars And like where I live now, I have...
0: Oh, sorry. I'm thinking 40 hours a week. Okay. Yeah. So $2,800 a month. So your husband is going to give... So now society's got one surgeon, but is out one audiologist, right?
2: Because your husband's uh, staying home.
5: Yeah. Well, and he was teaching part-time.
2: Well, yeah, but if you have yeah. two babies... <laughs>
0: I mean, I don't know. If you're moving to another state in particular, you're not going to have extended family, right?
5: Uh, Correct. They will come and go, but.
0: So if if someone's got to stay home with the babies.
5: He would stay home.
0: Okay. So then he's (laughs) not working.
5: Yeah. I mean, he would work from home whenever I'm come home and crash.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't count on that. A huge amount. So
5: the other part of the time he does art.
3: Yeah.
0: well i don't know yeah you enough. have kids he did art because they're a it's a 24-hour job because you're either parenting or you're exhausted at least you know the beginning right mm-hmm. so yes he can quit and you can live on the 2800 bucks a month but you won't have anything to do with the parenting right because the four days off don't you have to like study and and research and get ready for your exams and other stuff
5: hmm. So I mean, I- ideally. Yeah.
0: Right. And then, of course, if you want to go and get a practice or you want to go work someplace, if you're hiring and I don't know what the laws are, I'm just talking from an, a free market standpoint. So if you're hiring and you come in and you say, I have two children who are under three years of age or under four years of age. And some other young guy comes in who says, "I'm single." Who would you hire? No, sure. Right.
5: Um, like I said, there's a severe shortage of general surgeons, and where I'll be going home to. Um, I mean, hopefully, I just at some point you just have to like hope it works out. Thankfully, no, that's, like, no, no.
0: Hope it's not a strategy. No, 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 no. You are a very, very intelligent woman. I am not. You don't get away with crossing your fingers on this call. You know, you got to think this isn't
5: this isn't how you
0: do surgery, is it, my friend? Well, you just got to cross your fingers and hope it works out. Very rarely. I hope not. Right. And I think that your baby may be more important than an appendectomy. So I don't know about this whole work it out thing somehow, somehow, some way. Because it's tough, right? I mean, you want to be a surgeon and you want to be a mom. Yeah. And you want to be a wife and you want to have a life. But it's so many hours in the day, right?
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
5: And so, probably I should clarify. So, surgery practice is infinitely different from what I have been told on many accounts from surgery residency. That it is much more like a 40 hour work week, granted that it's still 40 hours away at, you know, plus commute, et cetera, from your child, but it is, it is not the same as surgery residency.
0: Right. And have you verified that where you're going? Cause if there's a severe shortage of surgeons, won't they want you to work a lot?
5: Yeah. So you'll still be busy. I, the place I've looked at has three other surgeons. So you would at least be splitting up call. Um, they're older, not older, but middle-aged surgeons who are at least, you know, have done this for a while. But yeah, I mean, you're still going to be busy, um, but not busy. Like like one day this week, I worked 90 hours. This next two months or one day this One week. One week this month. I worked 90 hours and I was like exhausted. And 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 you know what's funny? Just just,
0: just to interrupt, I just want to very briefly say, that bothers the heck out of me. You know, you can't be a truck driver and drive for more than seven hours, right? But you can be a surgeon tottering around 90 hours a week. That is a mental system. I just just wanted to mention that. Sure. Like I just think the amount of sleep deprivation, like what is the number two killer of Americans some in medical errors sometimes or in some circumstances? Do we think that the medical errors might be something to do with Godforsaken levels of, of exhaustion? I've just really always disliked that. You know, I, I've been in hospitals with doctors standing in front of me and I can tell that they've got like one eye propped open with a toothpick and the other one is completely asleep. And it's like, I don't want to deal with this guy. Can you get me a guy who's fresh? Can you get me a guy who's had a good night's sleep? Because I don't want this guy making decisions. It's terrible. It's a terrible system. And if it were any other environment, it would be absolutely unthinkable. You know, you you can't, you know, you get overtime if you're a plumber. You know, and if you fall asleep on a plumbing job, people don't die.
5: Okay, we'll work. I'm sorry? As surgeons would you say, okay, we'll work. Because the, the stakes are different, Right being a plumber versus being a surgeon and, and there is, I mean, there's actually like documented studies that show that surgeons operating, there are significantly more endorphins released. And so our attention level in the operating room, there was a good study I think out of NEMJ that showed there were no differences in surgeons operating post-call. So they'd operated all day. They were on call that night and they were operating the next day that those surgeons. Technically, did not make any more errors.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know the study, but I know that traffic accidents go up. Sure. Uh, Hang on. Traffic accidents go up when the clock switches one hour. So when people lose one hour of sleep on a weekend, traffic accidents go up. That's one hour of possible less sleep that people get. Traffic accidents go up. So, you know, that's studies that I know, I mean, the studies that you're talking about, I don't know, but, uh, sleep deprivation has a significant effect on performance as far as I can tell.
5: And and I will say in residency, it is very graduated that there are people, staff and other residents that, if, that i we talk a lot about recognizing when we're exhausted and calling for help. And I've done that myself. So...
0: No, I I don't, obviously, I can't tell you what to do. I don't tell people what to do as as policy. But I would be curious, Madison, what you would say to a woman who's 18 or 19 or 20 about how to plan her life. Because it seems like you're kind of on a collision here. Something's got to give. I mean, if you want to have kids in the next little while, let's say that you have to do this third year again, well, you've got another three years to go. I don't know that you want to start trying to start a whole new career in a whole new place and try and have kids at the same time. That's going to be a real challenge. So you'll be working less, but, uh, you know, people get sick, people go on vacation, um, people get too tired. People have been up all night. There may be times when you are on call and have to go in, even if it's supposed to be 40 hours a week at the same time that you're trying to start a family at the same time that you're trying to pay off this debt or whatever debt may, oh, I guess it won't accumulate from here. But what would you want to say or I guess what you wish someone had said to you when you're sort of 18 or 19 or 20 about how to plan for these kinds of things?
5: Hopefully the... 19 or 20 year old version of me or the generic version would listen to data. I mean, I think at one point you had said a child, an infant who is away from their mother 20 hours a week or more perceives that as like death of the parent.
0: Maternal abandonment. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yep. Um, 20 hours a week is not a lot at all. That's like sleep time minimum.
0: Um, and sorry, technically the, the status to do with daycare. I mean, I think if they're with grandparents oh. or whatever, that's different. It's if they're in daycare.
5: Okay. I think regardless, it's incredibly hard for somebody to balance that whenever they're probably at that point in their life, don't have some kind of like marriage prospect. I certainly didn't.
0: And that's were a Were you even gamble. thinking of it at that point?
5: I was thinking, I knew that I wanted to be a mother. I knew that I had watched my mom, who's a nurse, work. She has four children. Um, I think we're all fairly Wait,
3: successful. your mom's
5: a
0: nurse? Mm-hmm. Well, okay, I'm so sorry. Again, I asked you a question, but I just had to kick my jaw back up into my chin. Um, your mom's a nurse, but you thought that maybe you could have kids while you were... In this program? Wouldn't she have told you, oh, no, you're working like crazy hours. You can't do that? No. Why wouldn't she tell you
5: that? So she's a nurse who works with second-year surgery residents um, and has for 37
0: years. So she knows the, the insanity of the program intimately? Yes.
5: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She absolutely does. So
0: didn't she tell you you can't possibly think of having kids in this program?
5: No. Why? She said it's going to be hard. She said you're going to miss your child, and there are going to be days that you cry.
0: But she still think it was a good idea.
5: But she still thought that I could do it. She said if... And that's what I would probably... That's what I tell other medical students who think they may want to do surgery. It was like, you have to imagine that you will not be happy at all doing anything else. This has to be the last plan. You have to want this more than anything else, just to, I mean, obviously more than anything else, because I'm not a mother at this point. But you you cannot imagine yourself doing some other specialty in medicine.
0: Well or be a good parent. Right?
5: We but we don't really talk about that. Why? And when and when they ask me, I tell them like I want to have children in residency and I see other people do it. So I'm thinking that I can do it, but that's the only experience I can offer No, you can't,
0: you can't do it. Like you can't be a mom in residency. Like I just want to be really clear about that. I mean, you can physically, biologically, you can give birth to a child, but, but you can't, you cannot be working 70 to 90 hour weeks, four days off where you're studying for your exams. You can't do that and be a mom. I mean, I just want to be really clear about that. That's not even my opinion. That's just temporal fact
5: Yeah and that's I'll be perfectly honest. that is not a fact that we are taught on our pediatric your rotation. mom
0: works in this program
5: no. No, but that's not a fact that was ever talked about until the last few weeks that it, that I have heard it whether in medical school or from my mother Does your
2: mom love you? Yes. Then why wouldn't she tell you that this is,
0: can't possibly work?
5: Probably because she was thinking, "Man, my daughter's going to be a surgeon. This is so great." Oh, so vanity.
0: She chooses vanity and status over what makes you happy. Or basic facts you need. You and I may have slightly different definitions of the word love. I'm just telling you, you got a whole family who has way more knowledge of the situation than I do. Why are you getting this? These questions. From a podcast, not to downgrade the podcast. It's a great podcast, don't get me wrong. But you've got a mom who works not just in the field, but in this exact program. Why didn't she say to you, nah, can't do it?
5: Because she, I mean, because she thought, oh, well, I did it. I've seen other residents do it. And so she sees them at work.
0: She's a nurse. Not a surgeon? Yeah. Is she working
1: 90 hours a week?
5: There were times when I was growing up that she did run a clinic and worked 70 hours a week. There were times she did work
0: much more. And how old were you during those times, Madison?
5: I was in junior high and high school.
0: So not as a baby?
5: No. I don't know. I think she only worked 40 hours a week when I was a baby.
0: And how often did your father work or how much did your father work when you were a baby?
5: Um I don't know. When I was older.
0: Wait, you um, don't know I
5: mean? No, I, I assumed he worked full time. So my dad has a high school education. He would work like odd construction jobs. And um, that being said, he's like an incredible father and I adore him. Um But then later in my life, um, my, like my, his mother, my grandmother lived with us. And we were all working early morning jobs, and so he would stay home. He actually stayed home to take care of his mother and would also help us, like, do laundry, you know, house stuff, and make sure we had breakfast before we left. So he was actually, like, a stay-at-home dad for part of that time.
0: Did your mom become a nurse? I mean, back in the day, you could become a nurse with, like, a two-year degree. Did she get it that way? Yes. Yes. She knows that that's quite a bit different from what you're doing, right? Yes. And so what worked for her when she could work 40 hours, if she wanted, with a two-year degree and not a massive amount of debt back in the day, I mean, does she know about this
5: 263000 Oh, yeah. Yep.
0: Does she know how much you want to have children? Mm Mm-hmm. Has she tried to help you? Other than saying it's going to be hard, has she actually tried to sit down and help you get what you want?
5: Yeah. I mean, they've said... Her and my father both have said that they'll, because we, we live about seven hours apart right now, but they've said that they'll be here half the time.
0: Uh, what, is, what does that mean, half the time, like a month, a year, a day? what?
5: Half the time, like in a month.
0: So they will quit their careers to raise your children?
5: Yes. They would scale back.
0: So they would reduce their work hours to raise your children. Does that not seem a bit odd to you, Madison? That not not you as the mother would do it, but they as the grandparents would do it part-time?
5: I think partly it does take a village. I was largely raised by my grandparents, or not largely, partly raised by my grandparents on both sides. I mean, frankly, at least in retrospect, I don't know about at the time or how that affected me long-term, but really enjoyed the time that I had with my grandparents.
0: I just, I mean, I'm just telling you this as a father, which is not an argument. I'm just telling you where it's coming from is that, uh, you know, if my daughter wants to become a surgeon and wants to become a mom, we're going to sit down with a damn spreadsheet. <laughs> no, seriously, I'm not kidding. <laughs> no, we're going to sit down with a spreadsheet and I'll say, okay, well, how's this going to work? You know, you're 20, you want to become a surgeon. Hey, if you want to become a surgeon, we'll try and find a way to make that work. You also want to become a mom. Now you have a couple of choices. You can find a man to marry now, and you can become a mom right now, and then you can start becoming a surgeon when you're in your mid to late 20s, when your kids at least have hit the four- to five-year threshold where the personality is largely established. And then let's say it takes you eight years to become a surgeon. You can start practicing in your early to mid-30s, and uh, you can uh, be a mom uh, first and be a great mom, and then you can go and be a great surgeon and you'll have to have a husband or some support system, maybe it would be me, uh, who would be there to uh, help raise the child when you got older. But that would be one way uh, to do it. Uh, the other way to do it is to get your degree, stop and have children and then crank it up later, which is obviously a challenge because you have to keep your education current. And, and there's, you know, you may find that you don't want to go there go- because the other thing, too, she might enjoy so much being a mom. That she doesn't want to go become a surgeon later. She just really enjoys being a mom. But if if my daughter wants something, and I have life experience in, in this to some degree, as does her mom, then we sit down and we try to figure out how it's going to work. Because it sounds like you're just kind of stepping, like looking down, stepping, you know, one exhausted foot in front of the other, but the big zoom out picture of how your life is going to work seems to be kind of sketchy like it's thrown into this big giant foggy bucket called well it'll be hard but it'll work out
5: yeah no that's fair
0: and these are the questions and the reason i'm spending so much time is you're a great woman and i want you to get what you want madison but also there are younger people here and i've made this case before you need to think about this stuff before you're in it right because now you're in it yeah. and you're 31 you're sixty-three thousand dollars in debt you've got another three years to go Before you can start to make any real coin and and figure out what you want. And your fertility is declining. Right. And your husband has a good education and a good uh, job and an important work helping people heal. heal? Sorry, helping people hear. And he may have to quit. And, you know, society now loses one audiologist and uh, suffers thereby. So the, these are, sorry, the, sorry, to, I just wanted to say, these are difficult and challenging questions and it's it's easier to ask them before you're 31 and halfway through your surgery program.
5: Yep. And instead it's just like a nebulous, like. Fingers I'll, crossed. i will just work out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason you can make that I say, like, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
5: Has got me kind of far in life. Cause certainly, I mean, obviously like you said, my mom has a two year nursing degree and. Essentially, or by, I guess, U.S. FAFSA standards, I'm a first-year college graduate, first-generation college graduate, and went to medical school and is now, like, in surgery training. Like, those are not normal odds. Um, No, clearly you have a very high
0: (laughs) IQ, and clearly you have a lot of hand-eye coordination, no shaky hands, and a very good concentration and very intelligent. There's no question. Of all of that is, so I think is wonderful. The
5: trick in that is that you think, oh, well, I can – just a little bit more of myself I can give.
0: Well, but no, here's the challenge. And this is sort of – wanna, I want to really okay. impress upon you and, and the listeners. And please understand, Madison, this doesn't mean I'm right. Just because I want to impress – it doesn't mean that I'm right. I'm just telling you the, the stuff that's going through my mind. Is that – the difference, as you know, theoretically, but very practically when you hold that newborn in your hand is – When you become a parent, your willpower isn't enough. See, you can make sacrifices of your own time because it's your time. You can, in negotiation with your husband, you can make sacrifices of his time or your time together, right? Because you're both adults, you're both there by choice, and you both have lives. Your baby is not there by choice, did not choose you, and needs you desperately.
3: Yeah.
0: And so this is not something you can manage, and this is not a decision that you can make on your own because you're now responsible for a child. So to take a silly example, you can say, well, I'm not going to make my bed, all right? You don't have to make your bed. You can say, well, I can go and work five days straight at the hospital, and you can go work five days straight at the hospital. But if you have a dog at home... Someone's got to feed the dog. Like you can't just make those decisions independently anymore. So when you become a mom, and this is, I think, what you didn't get from your own mom, because she was working a lot of hours sometimes, maybe even when you needed her, because junior high and high school can be challenging for girls and boys, of course. But the only reason this can possibly work is if you sacrifice the interests of the child. In other words, if the child's preferences, if the baby's needs, that's the variable that's going to have to give. And that, I guarantee you, is the variable that will give because they have no power over you. You know, your boss yells yells at you to come into work and your baby's yelling at you to stay home. You're going to go into work because your boss can fire you, but your baby can't, right? And this is the problem that I have as a whole with Western civilization, which is one of the reasons not to put any pressure on you, Madison, but it's one of the reasons why Western civilization is not doing that well, is that children complain the least because they have the least power, so their interests get cast aside the most. Ah, your schools are too bad. Too bad. We need to appease the teachers' unions, and we want free union donations to Democrats. Oh, national debt? Well, we need to appease the voters. We'll just bury you under the debt because your needs don't really matter. Oh, you know, I've got an ambition. I've got ambition. I want to work. I want to go out and do things and make money. Your needs are going to have to come last. And... That is not bringing us much happiness. That is not bringing us much happiness. At the end of your life, I can tell you, you know, you're going to be 80, 90 years old. I don't know, maybe 200 if gene splicing continues to go its funky way. But you will at some point be on your deathbed. And I'm really sure that you and I and others will look back and say, not, did I put out another podcast? Did I do enough surgeries? Did I enough time at the hospital? Did I spend enough time in the financial service of others? Did I spend enough time cutting and slicing and sewing and stitching? All that matters at the end of our lives, and I think not just at the very end, but towards the last quarter or even third, is our relationships, is what we've built with each other, our loves, our binds, our connections, our sorrows, our joys, I think that work is a very distracting devil for youth and middle age but if you don't lay the foundations for the last quarter or third of your life and those foundations are not in work and not even fundamentally in money or resources or savings or assets but in in love in connection in intimacy in closeness honesty and that just takes time you can't milk relationships like you milk a cow you can't just squeeze intimacy and love out of relationships like it's the last piece of piece of toothpaste in a toothpaste tube it is time and connection and humor and stories and shared experiences love is being there you know there's something that was quoted in a book i read many years ago by daniel crittenden where a workaholic woman She said, but I do live in my children's hearts, you know, like she was dead. It's like you can't live in your children's hearts, I mean, unless you are dead. All they know is that you find everything in the world more interesting than they are. Every time you're not around your children, they know that you find whatever you're doing more important than them. Now, this doesn't mean like I'm doing this. My daughter's home, right? My wife's home too, but I'm doing this. I'm not saying you sit there and stare unblinkingly at your child and never do anything else because the purpose of being a parent is to raise your child to be functional in the world, which is not just staring at your child. So it's good for them to see you doing things. It's good for them to see you have ambition and achieve things. And my wife and I both have careers and all of that. But if you are not there very much or if you constantly have higher priorities than your children, they experience themselves as not interesting as not able to capture your attention, as not able to hold on to your attention. And what they generally do then is they'll do whatever they can to get your attention because children need their parents' attention no matter what. And if it's negative attention, it's negative attention. And this is why teenagers with absent moms, absent dads, they act out. They get angry. They, they cause trouble. They stay out too late. They get drunk. They crash a car because, hey, look, I'm getting mom and dad's attention, which is what I desperately need. Because if you continually say to your children, well... You know, you're interesting, but mommy really loves the cut. You're interesting, but trying to get this trying to deal with this subdural hematoma that's really got mommy's juices flowing. You know, you're interesting, but the hospital is more interesting. You're interesting, but my practice is more interesting. I mean, after a while it just becomes kind of humiliating. It becomes embarrassing, or you feel like you're an imposition. Because Children are very empirical. If you're constantly interested in everything but them, they get the message that they're not interesting to you. Now, what that means is that they'll either say, I'm not interesting at all. Mommy's not interested in me because I'm just not interesting, and then they have no sense of self-worth, right? Or they say, I'm interesting, but mommy's selfish. I am interesting, but mommy's self-absorbed. I am interesting, but mommy's narcissistic. And then they get, instead of having no sense of self-worth, they get angry and resentful. And they oppose you. And I didn't travel. I didn't really give public speeches. I didn't write books for like seven or eight years. Because that's the investment. That's the deal. That's what you do. I did shows, but I can do shows in a way that doesn't interfere with I don't want to say quality time. People always say, well, it's quality time. It's like, no. If you only get one meal of 500 calories a day, I don't care how good the food is, I'm hungry. And you're hungry too. There's no such thing as, well, there's enough quality food to make up for having no meals for the rest of the day. It's like, it does not work that way. There's no such thing as quality time. There's just time. And to be there for your children makes parenting so much fun. Because they know that you care about them. They know that you enjoy their company. They know why they're there. I don't know, but I mean, I'm just telling you my own experiences as a child, Madison, that I, I didn't know what they was there for. My mom didn't take pleasure in my company, really. She didn't take pleasure in being a mom. She'd open a yell in the middle of the night that she hated these effing children referring to us. You don't know why you're there if you're just a bother to your parents, if they don't genuinely enjoy your company, if they don't look forward to seeing you, if they don't have a great time when you're together and regretfully go to do other things. Why are you there? It's a fundamental confusion. Why did mom have me so she could be at the hospital? Why did mom have me so other people could raise me? Why did mom have me if she didn't want to spend time with me? It's very confusing for children and... I think it leads them to be quite vulnerable to love bombs when they get older by the by. If you have this hunger for connection, then you get groups that come along and, oh, I love you and you're special and (laughs) the love bombs come in and the peers become so important as well, right? If you don't have a strong connection with the parents, the peers become really, really important and they displace parents and then you end up with your children being raised by indifferent teachers and psychotic peers (laughs) because it's the lowest common denominator that dominates in those situations. So my concern is that the only way any of this can work is if your children's needs are sacrificed. And if your children's needs are sacrificed, why have them? Why have why bring people into the world so you can spend time elsewhere? Why 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 would you why, why? that doesn't make any sense to me. Now you can say well my husband's going to be around and or my husband's going to be there and listen that's not unimportant for sure it doesn't give them the breastfeeding. Uh, in the way that they should have it but you know there's you know bottles and and all of that you can probably make that work but if you want to be a mom it's going to be it's going to take some time and it's especially in the first couple of years I mean you don't have to sit there and stare at your kids and spend 16 hours a day with them when they get older but because that's probably a little claustrophobic but especially for the first couple of years It is, uh, I think it's a full-time job. It's more than a full-time job. As they say about early childhood, the days are long, but the years are short. And I miss that time. You know, when we're around kids who are younger than my daughter, I do miss that time. But I don't miss it, like, yearningly. Like, I wish I had more of it. It's like, oh, that was a great time when she was, like, three and four or two or one. And I'm, but I don't sit there with any sense of, like, I didn't get everything I could out of it. And that question of your children's needs, what if you design your life around what your children need? And that's, to repeat myself, that is my fundamental concern, is that if you say, okay, now what do I need? Or what does my loans require? Or like, what if I put at the very center of my thinking about my life, what my children need? Will my children want me to be a surgeon working 70 hours a week or 60 hours a week or 50 hours a week? Will my children want me to be gone that much? Well, no, of course not when they're babies. They don't want that at all. They don't know, oh, mommy's got to go save some lives. It's like, no, they don't care. <laughs> they don't care about that. They care about you. And if we design our lives around what our children need, what do our lives look like? Because as a society, and I think a little bit in your family, Madison, the children's needs have not come first. And I'm going to submit the possibility that if you want to have a great time as a parent, design from your children's needs up from there. Rather than thinking, well, I'm going to do what I want and they're going to fit in somehow. I don't think they will. And that's the end of my big sort of thoughts and, and talks about this. And I hope that has some <laughs> value or makes some kind of sense.
5: It does. I i It's like a one last thought I will kind of push back and say there was at one point my mom and I worked together. She was obviously a nurse. I was a secretary in the same unit and literally in the same day I met four people whom my mom had touched and they were at times she would like missed sports events that I was doing in junior high. So obviously junior high, not, not earlier in life, but one of them was a father of a 13-year-old girl who had who had been burned and had talked to who still knew my mother and still knew the great care that she had given and i just remember thinking man what my mom was doing was so much more important and then, and i still you know i wish she'd been at those events i wish she'd done more things but but i recognized as an adult as like a 23-year-old that Over a decade before, what my mom had been doing was more important than what I needed. Um, Like I said, different different age than what we're necessarily talking about. And I realize we've gone for a long time. I really appreciate this. It's a lot to think about in terms of my life and planning.
0: Yeah, but what she didn't teach you was how to put kids' needs first. And that is great that she helped other people, but charity begins at home. That's what I was always taught. So let us know how it goes. I really, really appreciate uh, you opening up this thought process. This is a big challenge. And I'm really, yeah, really, um, uh, I really appreciate, uh, the, the conversation. I hope it was valuable to you. I certainly found, it uh, I certainly found that, uh, very important. So yeah, let us know how it goes and uh, very, very best of luck with things. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye.
1: All right, up next we have Anna. She wrote in and said, How do I peacefully prepare my child for a violent world? Or, am I adequately preparing my children for the world by being a peaceful parent? Being a peaceful parent has given me children who are bright, brilliant, and kind, but terrified of authority and violence. My little boy is crippled by anxiety. He cries every day before school. The other children seem so unaffected. Living in Appalachia, the general consensus is that I am not doing my part to toughen him up. Do I really have to? We've been to doctors, He is in counseling, but I'm afraid. What if the problem is me? I even learned how to shoot a gun so he feels safe when his dad is not here. I never thought I would ever fire a gun. So I was glad to find out that Stefan is a peaceful parenting advocate. So many of the advocates make it look like hippy-dippy nonsense. I would truly appreciate his guidance. This is not about me. This is about my babies.
0: Hey, Anna. Appalachia? Appalachia? How, how is that?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Wait, it's, those were two slightly different pronunciations. Appalachia or Appalachia?
6: Well, it, it kind of depends. I think both are technically oh, accurate. Oh, like
0: Stefan and Stefan. Okay, got it. Got it exactly.
6: Great. How old is your boy? He is seven.
0: And your daughter?
6: She is five.
0: Okay. And what's your son's education like? Where's he going to school? Or is he?
6: He goes to a public school. Um, He is extremely smart and very bored at school most of the time (laughs) Um, I don't think he's really challenged enough Um, he's exceptionally good with computers Um, he's a brilliant kid he thinks a lot he you know from the time they were born um, you know I started with the attachment parenting and the baby bees and you know all of that stuff and it all worked so well but He's. it's not working well for him in the outside world.
0: Why is he in government school?
6: I wanted to homeschool him. Um, you know that they come to your house when your child is about three or four, they start coming to your house around here. See, the area that I live in is extremely impoverished. There's a lot of children who don't even live with their parents, a lot of drug use. I mean... In West Virginia, the drug epidemic is so bad that the they can't afford to bury them. The indigent burial program is completely overwhelmed. So they're all very concerned about everyone. They show up at your house, and they kind of make you feel like a criminal if you don't send them to school. And there's actually no other options that's anywhere nearby for schooling. It's homeschool or it's public school.
0: And so – why is he in government school? Because they came to your house? You don't, yes, you don't I'm afraid. have to send him to government school, right?
6: I guess not, but I'm afraid of them.
0: Well, but you can get information about that, right? True. So I also doubt, I
6: mean, I have some doubts your son about myself. feels anxious
0: though. because you don't want to feel bad?
6: No, no, no. I don't know that I am doing him any favors, if I keep him at home because he's eventually going to have to go out in the real world.
0: But the real world is not government school. The real That's world true. is the remnants of the free market. I mean, unless you want him to go to prison, <laughs> which I hope you don't. And of course he, he won't, but the real world is not government schools, right? Government schools uh-huh. are horrendous environments, particularly for boys. So if you That's like say, sending someone to, government school to prepare them from the real world. is like locking them in a dungeon to prepare them for a life of freedom. It's not going to prepare them for the real that. world because hopefully he'll have nothing to do with that kind of coercive environment when he gets older.
6: Right. I, I don't know anyone who homeschools. Like the consensus is if you homeschool your child, they will be weird. They will be this. They will be that because no one does it here at all. Um, it's just never really seemed like – Something I should do. Like, it's just like what you have to do is send him to school.
0: So, um, they'll be normal. What does your husband say? He,
6: he kind of leaves that up to me. Why? Um, he would be very Why? supportive. He's got a son. By, well, what does he mean
0: he leaves it up to you?
6: I suppose because I'm the primary caregiver.
0: Yeah, but he's a father. What do you mean? His son is unhappy. Yes. So, what's he doing about it? I don't mean to be annoying. I'm just, these are genuine questions. Like if your son is, is, is anxious, you said, right? Yeah. He doesn't like going to school. Right. So he doesn't want to be there. So what are you going to do? I mean, you're home, right? So you can. Yes. You can keep him home. You can homeschool him, right?
6: Yeah, I could.
0: So I'm trying to figure out the resistance here. You, you don't like what I'm saying, and I'm just trying to figure it out, right?
6: Right. Um, I suppose there's also um, an issue. I'm not sure that I – I'm afraid that I cannot properly educate him, that I'm not adequately prepared for it. Why not? He's a brilliant child.
0: Well, <laughs> do you think he's getting anything at school?
6: He's not now, but I believe that he will in the
0: future. Why is that? Because if the gets schooling gets so much better in Appalachia when he gets older? No,
6: no, but I would assume that the coursework would get more challenging eventually.
0: Does he read and study and work with computers at home? <laughs> yes, he does. But so he's just getting smarter. Yes. So even if the coursework gets more challenging, he's still going to be taught by mostly idiot teachers. Like you understand, teachers are the stupidest profession statistically. Like, if, if you've got really high marks, you go into physics. You're really high IQ, you got physics, you go to philosophy. Those are the two right. highest, right? It's mm-hmm. the bottom, the dregs, who end up at the education department. And, you know, like, I'm sorry to be so blunt, but statistically, no, it's generally no, the that's, case. That's the good. teachers are the dumbest professionals on the planet. Uh, well, in the West. Why?
6: That seems so backwards.
0: Of course um, it is, but why, it's the government. Why, it's, is, listen, why is there that? There are brilliant teachers. Are we We've had some thing? call into the school. I'm just talking about an average, but blah, blah, blah. I, I
6: know that. But it's a
0: government program, right? So, of course, it's going to be the opposite of what it should be. You know, sheriff, sheriffs of Broward, the, the, the police in Broward County were supposed to go into the school and put lead into the bad man. But they didn't. So, no, you're not going to get quality education. And I don't know. He's got mostly female teachers, I assume. Yes. Right. And a lot of them have gone through the education department where they've been indoctrinated with fairly radical feminism. Yes. And so they have an anti-male, anti-boy bigotry. They are relentless sexists in general. This is true. So you're putting him into a toxic environment where he's disliked for his gender. You're right. So, of course, he's anxious. I would assume. Yeah. On average, right. that would be the case.
6: He's very much, you know, he's he's very, you know, hyperactive nonsense. Um, so yes, he he doesn't really fit in the mold very well. So that make that would make sense.
0: Do you need to stay in the neighborhood?
6: I absolutely do not want to. I, that is what we're actually saving up to get out of here.
0: Yeah, because, you know, the drug addicts can't afford to bury the dead. Kids aren't around their parents. Kids are
6: truly right. Truly I mean, this is Lord it's, of the Flies it's, material,
0: it's, which you probably want to. If you boogie out to some other place, is. you can find a place with more homeschooling if isolation is the concern.
6: Yeah, you're right. I suppose that this it, it's not that I don't like what you're saying. It's that I already know this and yeah. i i i have let social pressure keep me from doing what i should do
0: and what is the social pressure from who from the drug addicted just, neighbors
6: just anyone i know i mean you know my own family is concerned about you know weird weirdness at school but they're coming around on that you know if you don't go to school you'll you'll be weird and but i think that they're kind of seeing that that's not really <laughs> it's not really working out I'm, that I'm way. Just, I'm just,
0: I'm <laughs> it's just making him, weird, him weird, if anything. I don't mean to laugh. So let me just, uh, just quick question. The, the the drug addicts and smashed up families, did those people mostly go to government schools? Yes. You say nobody yeah, homeschools, cool. right? So that means right, that these yeah. smashed up, drug yeah. addicted, broken, drunken, beating, cheating families around you. Well, those people all went to government schools. So I'm pretty sure yeah. that anything that's not that is is an improvement.
6: You're right. It's frustrating. Oh, it to is. Know because you're forced you're to pay problem. for it either
0: way, right? Oh, of course. Absolutely. That's the scam. That's the deal. Um, but, you know, and, you know, people had to go to war in the past. Now we just have to not send our kids to government schools. Yeah.
6: That's true. They're garbage. What kills me is that, you know, the homeschooling requirements, I would have to teach him in order to, you know, match up with public education standards. I would have to teach him about two hours a day is how it would work out.
3: Um, wait, You why? know, when he
6: gets older and why? things get harder. Wait, wait, why? Just the basic standards.
0: But you said he's really in smart. Order-
6: he is. I'm saying, an abs- you know, at the absolute maximum, two hours a day.
0: You might be surprised how quickly a smart kid can chew through a government curricula.
6: Oh, I believe that. Oh, I have no doubt. I mean, that's like their, their minimum that they give. Right. Um, why, why, does he, why do they put them in there for seven hours a day? <laughs> what are they doing? Well,
0: it's just daycare. I mean, it's, 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 it's um, so parents can go off and work. And governments can collect taxes from parents going off to work, and so that uh, teachers' unions can pay their teachers. And, you know, indoctrination is not a uh, split second affair. Indoctrination, uh, you know, it takes time. It takes time to really grind out the powder of the soul that keeps your children's personalities together. It takes quite a while to foot stomp on the face of their identity. So, yeah, you got to sand this stuff down. uh, People resist. Kids resist, and it takes time to undo the molecular personalities that keep your children together.
6: That's interesting. That's one thing that you know. I had, I have said before. My daughter's not in. She is not in school yet. Um,
3: And I've said, I don't.
6: Oh my god! There's no comparison. She's an incredibly happy child. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um. I, you know, it's just, I've had a lot of doubt and that, you know, I don't want to make the wrong decision because their education is such an important decision. Um, no, it's not. You
0: know, no, I'm sorry. Well, I, no, the data says that it's not at all. The data is very clear that it doesn't matter how your children are educated.
6: Oh, I just mean them having an education. That no, no, being, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't
0: matter. Successful. So, I mean, I just had this conversation with the editor of the magazine or the journal called intelligence. And
3: mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I've heard from Charles Murray that it doesn't matter how your children are educated. It doesn't matter if they're homeschooled, if you spend $20,000 a year on public school, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, if they go to I mean it doesn't in terms of how they're going to turn out. It has as much relevance to their end, uh, ending IQ as school has to their height. Right. How smart your son is going to be is how smart your son is going to be. And at his age, is probably about a 30 percent about 30 percent of his intelligence is genetic by the time he's 18 it's going to be over 80 percent i mean unless he's really traumatized right so it doesn't matter i mean i know we've uh, and and the guy i was talking to today he said that nobody can find in terms of how life outcome goes no nobody can find that education of any kind has more than a 10 percent variance which is not much. Which is not that's much. amazing. So I, I know we're supposed to freak out about education because that's how they yeah. sell us a whole bunch of crap. Yeah, but there's statistically, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if your kids homeschooled. It doesn't matter if, in terms of like, in terms of happiness, it matters. In terms of trauma, in terms of of um, their bond with you, their trust in you. You know, you're supposed to be there to protect them from being preyed upon to protect them. You don't protect them from every bad experience. No. But you protected them from needlessly bad experiences, right? So you don't say, well, we got to bubble wrap these kids every time they go outside because they might get strawberries on their knees. But right. you don't, you know, just push them down the stairs and say, well, that'll toughen you up, right? <laughs> I mean, that's just abuse, exactly. right? And exactly. you, I don't see how you can, particularly with boys, how you can send boys to public school and be a peaceful parent. It is a toxic environment. It is an indoctrinating is. environment. And it will cause problems.
6: It, it has gone against everything that I do at home.
0: Well, you, so you've got a deep program too. And then what yes. your kid says in his heart is he says, so mom sends me to a place she really disapproves of. Why? Well, right. because she, he knows why. He knows why. It's because you're afraid of peers, and you will submit to peers, and you will submit to peer disapproval. So then what's he going to do in school? He's going to submit to peer disapproval.
6: Oh, that's terrifying.
0: Of course. It's Appalachian. Not to uh, to overly cliche things, but...
6: No, truly, it is.
0: You're in get-or-done territory and not in a good way.
6: No. I'm glad to know that about the IQ, because his IQ is... It's higher than mine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um,
0: which, means he, which means you don't have anything to worry about as far as, you know, keep him safe. He's got a sibling. And you don't have anything to worry about as far as his success will be in life. This is, his high IQ his, is the single biggest predictor of how, he's, how well he's going to do in life. And good for you. You know, good, I mean, all you have to do is, is give him a positive environment, uh, as positive environment as you can. You know, I mean, he'll figure things out very quickly in, in a way that's maybe even faster than you can teach him, particularly around computers. So yeah, no, if he's, he's high IQ absolutely. and fascinated by computers, you know, good thing his mom, his, his future is set. He's made. Thank you. Good.
6: That's, I appreciate that very much.
0: All right. All right. All right, so let us know how it goes, and yeah, if you can't find anything positive in the environment, you know, it's a free country. You can go anywhere you want. You're right.
6: Thank you very much.
0: You are very welcome. You are very welcome, and thank you, everyone, so much for uh, calling in and for being part of this, I think, the greatest conversation in the world. <laughs> he said humbly, well, it has a huge amount to do with the listeners who are very honest and very open, and... um revelatory to me every uh, every time this happens. So thank you, everyone, so much. Please don't forget, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Very, very important to support what it is that we're doing here. We've got uh, some more costs, of course, with some of this travel and the speaking and so on. So if you could help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate, that'd be very, very helpful. FDRURL.com slash Amazon. You can just bookmark it, throw it on your bookmark bar. FDRURL.com forward slash Amazon. If you've got some shopping, it costs you nothing, of course. Don't forget The Art of the Argument. It's a great book, theartoftheargument.com, to pick that up. And last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Stefan Molnou. Thank you, everyone, so much for another wonderful, wonderful evening of conversation. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful night.